Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And sometimes movies that were on the list at one point but aren't anymore, but we're going to talk about them anyway because it's our podcast. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always... We're taking back the internet. We are one Star Trek film <laughs> at a time. I am your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I have been and always shall be well, Darren. Thank you. How 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 are you? <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Um, I don't want to say it is a far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far greater rest I go to than I have ever known. Because that sounds kind of a bit of a downer, to be honest. Um, yeah. And also maybe a bit of a spoiler. But yes, we are talking about... Especially, like, it, it, the, the words, like, it, it, it is a far better thing. When you're recording a podcast, just seems <laughs> <laughs> managing expectations, Andrew. I'm managing expectations is what I'm doing here. Yeah, um, I'm saying this may be the best thing I've ever done. That is not a judgment on this thing. This is uh, more on anything else I've ever done. But yes, we were talking about Nicholas Myers, 1982. 40-year-old Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which is releasing in cinemas this weekend. That's Myself right. and Andrew had a bit... I was shocked to find that it was in, in cinemas, in local cinemas. Like, I, I could have... Yeah, no, it's I big. could have gotten in the car and driven to, to watch this. This was after, I think, watching it um, on a, a DVD that I own. Um, I, I realized... Um, oh... Yeah, this this is on. <laughs> yeah, well, this this is why this. Well, okay. Well, we were doing this in part for the same reason we did the motion picture, which is that like we had a scheduling snafu, and Darren's like, I don't want to do any research this week, and I also don't want to go and harass a guest at short notice to come on with us. So I'll just jump something on Andrew. Uh, but also, we also want to Star Trek fans. Yeah, we we want to give people listeners that is a taste of what they might be getting every week if there was a Patreon. So if, behind the paywall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if where, you could where, find the paywall. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Where it's um where it's less preparation goes into it. Um there's no guest and and we don't talk about the thing that we're meant to talk about. Um which is movies on that, the on on the 250. Uh, two, so if that's what you want like from this podcast, from this podcast specifically, yeah. Like tweet us five times. It can be from the <laughs> same account. Um, just just um, five times in general just just drop it uh, maybe put a dollar sign in there a euro sign depending on what country you're in just so we know <laughs> that there is an interest and a market there for this but yes we are talking about Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan the sequel to the motion picture which we talked about earlier this year the motion picture got a theatrical release of its director's edition which we talked about and discussed The Wrath of Khan is coming back to cinemas in the UK and Ireland uh, it is being released I believe on the 2nd of September is roughly when they're planning or next weekend as we're recording this so you'll be able to go to the cinema whether before or after listening to this podcast and watch it kind of at your leisure although we are suspecting that most of our our listeners probably are going to be alive it, it is indeed it's like it's 1982 all over again um but to get us started here andrew do you remember the first time you saw star trek 2 the wrath of khan i i, I do this was my um escape what i i could kind of um imagine um you know distant uh new worlds while while, while i lived in Barana. <laughs> which 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 wasn't a great place at the time. I've um I I believe it's a great place to go if you're um uh, fishing or or boozing and and I guess I I and oh, you were doing none of those as a neither ni- ten as year a child. old. I I I was introduced to Star Trek to my brother um uh, Johnny 
and we watched uh, The Next Generation together. We watched um, these Star Trek movies together. We were very excited about um, Generations and First Contact. And I guess, um, I suppose, it, 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 maybe, maybe it kind of dwindled. It and deteriorated later. as yeah, it went on. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, um, we, we watched... I think I mentioned Deep Space Nine. We we also would have watched um, a decent amount of Voyager. I think it was towards yeah. the end of Voyager that we it, it stopped becoming kind of unmissable. You know when yeah. when a when a when a kind of a um, an IP sort out. of loses okay. you. Um, where it becomes kind of where we reach market saturation yeah, point, which I'm like, sure has no relevance to any big media franchise that we've discussed on this <laughs> podcast before. But, and you have specifically described as homework. Yes. Yeah. They, they, it's interesting, though, how like um, like you will have these things that take you like like the the book and um, film Fever Pitch is about a person who um, was obsessed with Arsenal Football Club and then kind of went away from it and then kind of came back. But that it it was always kind of there somewhere, yeah, and through their life, yeah, yeah, and 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 similarly, like when I started doing the podcast, I think I stopped watching Arsenal as much, kind of. Yes, and, I think uh, I think I initially was like Andrew, we can podcast schedule around Arsenal games. You're like, there's always Arsenal games. There was, yeah, yeah, and I didn't want it to always be a thing because I didn't want to and be I'm that sorry. guy. No, 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 the, the, where where it's kind of like, oh, I can't do that. Um, cause it like, like you, you did like, I've, I've, I've friends who will kind of either miss things or feel uncomfortable being at something, um, when a match, when is, a on. match is on. And I, 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 I felt like I, I, no, I, I just have to kind of, um, but I think lately I've gotten more into it and, and Star Trek, um, is one of those things that, um, was very, uh, big for me in my childhood. And um, I revisit, but it's not the kind of new stuff I revisit. Yeah. Um, and well, we watched Deep Space Nine together. Well, yeah. before we did the motion picture, we watched, we sat down and watched two hours of Deep Space Nine because, of course, we did exactly. Which, um, which, which, which for me is like a joy, and it's, 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 it's like something that I would do if, if I thought of doing it on like a self care day. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no. as in like do something that you really enjoy. And, um, well, that takes you back to a time that you remember. Yeah. Like, it's the kind of thing, like, it's, I remember watching that stuff as a kid and I remember having no worries, but, like, is Cisco going to defeat the Dominion? Yeah. Is I'm... Gowron, <laughs> the head of the Klingon Empire, a shapeshifter? It, yeah. It, um, uh, <laughs> it, um, sorry, that was a deep cut reference, well, but, yeah. Uh, no, and it's kind of like, um, Will Will Demar outlive them all? <laughs> Inexplicably, yeah. <laughs> uh, background character. Yeah, the the guy whose job it is to fire the phasers in the background of one episode in the fourth season. Um, it's interesting because, like the 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 extent to which like Sopranos did that later, where they would have like these characters who aren't really doing anything in the scene who suddenly have this really rewarding arc. <laughs> arc yeah. yeah. That ends um, up like driving the first half of the final season. Yeah. Um, 
But, um, but yeah, it's actually, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that. And again, maybe this isn't a conversation for the Wrath of Khan, but it's kind of like around that time, I am, I think I'm slightly nerdier than you. Um, So my period of like falling out of love with Star Trek arrived slightly later, but it is around that same time where it's like, I think towards the end of the 90s, you did have like market saturation where you had two Star Trek shows running simultaneously. You had Deep Space Nine and Voyager. You had a cinematic franchise running simultaneous uh, in parallel to those. You said, like, obviously, Generations, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. Yeah. And I think you, you tapped out at the end of Voyager, and I can kind of respect that because Voyager feels in many ways like it's kind of photocopying and recycling the next generation. You've already seen a lot of the stories being told. It might have even been before the end of Voyager. I, I think I, I was kind of tuning back in kind of sporadically at that point just kind of checking to see if it was if the pulse was there if the love could yeah. be rekindled kind of thing exactly yeah yeah I, 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 yeah it it became it became less of a compulsive kind of a thing um, and more of just a check in with it for now and then kind of thing i mean i i had a similar thing with um enterprise i got as far as enterprise and i remember watching the second season of Enterprise and just kind of just falling out of love with it. And again, I think it was because I was going to college. I was obviously out at night doing things because I was a cool college kid. Um, but it was like, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't... facilitating people having fun mostly. Yes, you? that was that was my that was my job. I was mostly the door guy. Uh, I was very comfortable being the door guy. And the guy whose job it was to make sure that the people who didn't get in didn't cause any trouble and everything was cool. Like occasionally you, 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 you'd have to tear somebody's throat out. Um, just to make a point like <laughs> but nobody got out of line afterwards that's the important thing yeah. um but sorry patented mcgruber throat rip um but <laughs> i was thinking more I roadhouse think, <laughs> yeah no i imagine with, which has a, a remake coming with is it jake gyllenhaal is, is starring in the roadhouse remake oh really yeah which is an interesting choice that's going to be very intense uh but yeah like i mean that sort of thing where you have that i don't know i I, I think, like, Jake Gyllenhaal can be very, very silly. He can, I suppose. He did that, like, John Mulaney thing, didn't he, as well? The Lunchbox Kids or something, what was it called? Where he was the music man? Yeah, but, it, like, like, the stuff he does on SNL when he does it, he doesn't... It, like, he often isn't playing the straight man. He's some, yeah. like, kind of wacky scientist or something. And, like, Oakja, for example. I think yes, there's a few yeah, other Oakja, examples. So, yeah. yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, you you could also argue even say his his blockbuster work like kind of you know Spider Man Far From Home, where yeah. he's kind of leaning into that going big, going broad thing, um, you know that sort of thing, cartoonish kind of eyes with the the, the bug popping and stuff like that. You know, welcome to the Jake Gyllenhaal podcast where it's all Roadhouse all the time. <laughs> um, but no, back back to the point that you were kind of making there, which is like I remember falling out of love with Voyager while it was on the air, and then followed by Enterprise. Um, and again, I, I went back and I reviewed them all for the blog. Like I've, I've reviewed something like, you know, 700 odd Star Trek episodes for my own blog. And it's just it, it gets to a point where it, it's a slog because it it's just so many episodes are the same thing over and over again, where it really feels like you've reached a kind of a point of market saturation. And it's kind of funny thinking about it now where we live in an age where all these franchises are so oversaturated. Uh, but it's basically doing the same thing over and over again, watching kind of like photocopies of photocopies of photocopies of photocopies. And like everyone is just a little bit more faded. It's a little bit less energized, a little bit less dynamic. And it really does feel like you kind of reach a point where there's just too much of this stuff out here and too much of it is the same. And it's kind of like maybe just, you know, I don't know, ration, ration this stuff out, yeah. you know, to me. Like Star Wars, I was never really that big into 
but um yeah star star wars is a very good example of it actually because like it, there was a time where it was just like three movies and they released you know three years apart so six years between the first and the third and it was like yeah there's there's maybe about i don't know uh seven hours of this over the total of six years whereas nowadays it's like there are 20 to 30 hours of this every single year it, it, it it's hard to keep track of even for me i think and it's my job um i think i watch it because it's so um uh like ubiquitous and so it, 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 like um but I, I i think even that is kind of uh, diminishing a wee bit like the the and i i i find myself watching stuff like kenobi because i want to be i want to uh, be able to talk about it with you and with Aww, like um you. Well, yeah, yeah, but uh, like, like, eventually, you oh, know, no. we'll we'll be talking about some kind of Star Wars movie, and uh, and it'll and, come back in somehow. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think like more broadly, kind of culturally, I think it's kind of like um, we should we should put a marker in the sand here. Andrew texted me over the weekend yes. and was like, "So when? So we need to talk about Obi Wan Kenobi. We need to hold an emergency confab." I, I was working. having a shower and I started to have all these thoughts about it. <laughs> So we're going to put that in the set. We don't know if we're going to take up the first hour of the solo episode that we do this Christmas covering that, or if we're going to do like a special emergency confab, but we will figure that out. We've kind of put a marker uh, in the sand. You see, they, we're, we're teasing our listeners. They have to, they, yeah. to tweet us five times with like a yen <laughs> or a re, renminbi. Um, yeah. not, not, we're not accepting rubles at the moment, unfortunately. Renminbi um, and stimpminbi. <laughs> okay. Um... But uh, yeah, so okay, so let, let's Did talk you know a bit that that renminbi is the currency. But you can't the the uh, uh, yuan and renminbi are interchangeable. But technically, you don't give somebody a renminbi; you give somebody a yuan, and that the currency per se is the renminbi. Okay, how does that work logically? As in how, how, them. Um, yeah, but surely it rotates out of circulation then, right? Theoretically. If you can only ever be given one. No, you can be given five. You are. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's a plural. It's a singular plural thing. Yeah, it, it's like if, if you okay. said, what, what is the conversion rate between euros and renminbi? And then you would say one euro equals blah de blah yuan. Yuan. Okay. So, oh, so it's like it's like less and fewer kind of thing. No, no. It's it it's it's. Oh, okay. Oh, the, okay. Sorry, you're confusing the, me here. Where you're like, because you were like, it's one, one, one yuan, and it's like, no, no, no. But it can no, be multiple yuans. Yeah. It it's 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 to describe the like the units of yeah, the currency yeah, ra- yeah. rather than the currency um, as uh, a concept. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you you have you have less bread as opposed to fewer or whatever. It's like if you've got fewer, it's a precise number. If you've got less, it's just conceptually less than. I don't think you understand. Uh, it, it's not I, important I, anyway. They are interchangeable. So if our listeners want to, to um, like tweet a, a Yuan or a Renminbi, like either are acceptable. Um, okay. 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 Um, or a, 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 a dong. I think that's uh, the... Is that don't a, invite listeners to send dongs, please. <laughs> um, but, okay. I, so as the person who manages the Twitter account, do not encourage listeners to send dongs. Um, but, 
Okay, let's talk. Let's talk a bit about Star Trek Two, just in terms of general production. As we mentioned um, when we talked about like the motion picture, the motion picture was released. It was a massive commercial success. It was one of the ten biggest movies of 1979 at the American box office. It also cost far far more than Paramount had expected it to, so it did not make nearly as much profit as they anticipated that it would, particularly when you factored in things like the post-production costs, things like the promotional costs, and obviously splitting that with distribution and exhibitors and all that sort of stuff. So Paramount looked at the figures and they were like, we got really, really lucky. And they also looked at the reviews and said, we got really, really lucky. We cannot do that again. Uh, we cannot do what we just did. And as I said, like, I think the description I used when we talked about the motion picture was it got suicide squatted, which is like the movie was released, was a massive commercial success, got terrible reviews. And they're like, if we're going to try this again, we're going to take a very, very, very different approach. So they immediately decide that they are going to sideline Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, which is a smart decision considering, um, do you know what Gene Roddenberry's original pitch for Star Trek 2 was? I do not. Can I, um, let me... Okay. Guess. Okay, we're gonna guess. I like the, I like the turning of stuff into competitions here. Okay. Um, I don't I I don't think I think you'll be surprised by what it is, no matter how high you go or how hard you go. I think it's um. Well, like like. I don't know. And it, the 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 I'll thought, give you a hint. the thought I had initially is that is that um is that uh. Uh, Kirk <laughs> gets someone pregnant, but that's kind of like <laughs> that's kind of what yeah. Star Trek Two ends up being yeah, about. Yeah, um, um, uh, no, sorry, this this isn't as much fun as I thought it would be. Okay, probably right. for for anyone. So for um, anyone, yeah. all right. So so the initial pitch, Gene Roddenberry's initial pitch, just me going. Uh, and now, to be clear, he he and his estate deny that it happens, but everybody who worked on the movie and everybody who worked at Paramount was like, "Yep, this definitely happened." Was it something sexy? No, no. Okay. Um, the idea was it would be a time travel movie in which the Klingons would manipulate like Earth history to prevent the Federation from ever happening, and it will culminate in a sequence where, in order to reset the timeline, Spock had to go on the grassy knoll with a sniper rifle. And shoot John F. Kennedy to preserve history. Paramount understandably looked at that pitch and were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and so Roddenberry was very gently uh, kicked upstairs, basically told, like, well, look, you'll be an executive consultant. <laughs> they explained that he wasn't the only shooter. There, there was also <laughs> likely Harvey Oswald in the book depository. It's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not positing. We're not saying that he killed him. It's, it's not positing that he's entirely responsible. He was just part yeah. of the kind of crew. That, yeah. And Scotty there, like transporting the magic bullet, as it were. Is it, is it part of the mission, or does he he get pawned far? and he, he gets, <laughs> and just like, goes a bit mad. Just goes a bit, no. yeah, yeah. We all go a little nuts sometimes, like a murder boner. And yeah. just, um, <laughs> decides to assassinate Kennedy. No, the idea is that it's it's meant to be riffing on something like the city on the edge of forever. Yeah, uh, which is yeah. like one of the great Star Trek stories, and obviously and like written by Harlan Ellison. Kind of a Star uh, Trek trope as well. Like, yeah, that that they it's a well that they have been able to kind of dip into quite a bit. Yeah, Deep Space Nine did it with Past Tense, for example. Uh, Voyager, I think, has done it a couple of times as well with episodes like Future's End and stuff. The idea of we mucked up the timeline. Enterprise did it. Didn't they? Enterprise, Enterprise went back to the Second World War, did Stormfront. Yeah, did it quite a bit, didn't they? Well, they had the whole temporal Cold War thing in inverted commas, um, or whatever that was meant to be. But yes, they they did that. Uh, the I quite like the kind of like the symmetry of the 
end of the first season of Star Trek has like the city on the edge of forever and the start of the final season of Enterprise has Stormfront, which is a riff on the city on the edge of forever. But yeah, and understandably, Paramount executives were like, you know what, Gene, that's a great idea, but we're going to take the movie in a slightly different direction. So we're going to appoint you as like executive consultant. You're going to be like the guy you're going to we're going to run all the ideas by you. You're going to have opinions. It's going to be great. Uh, what we're actually going to do is we're going to bring in Harv Bennett, who's the guy who's responsible for, I believe, is it the six million dollar woman, uh, the bionic woman? Sorry. Um, and basically he's going to come in and he's going to put together a feature film. Um, and so obviously they sit down, they bring Harv Bennett in, he goes and he meets with the head of Paramount, who I believe is Charlie Bloodhorn, the same guy we talked about, we talked about The Godfather. In China, it was called Yuri Yuan. Sorry. Um, the Wrath of Yuan. Um, but they, Yuan. they bring in... Sorry. They, they bring in, they bring Harv Bennett in to a meeting with Charlie Bloodhorn. And Bloodhorn's like, so what did you think of Star Trek, the motion picture? And he's like, I thought it was very boring. And Bloodhorn's like, I like you. You got you, you, you got this. I think I think you're the man for the job. So tell me, you know, could wh- what could you do? Could, could you make a better movie for that much money? It's like, I could make a better money and made a movie on a quarter of that budget. At which point Bloodhorn goes, deal sold. Ugh. And Bennett goes, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant at all. Um, no, but yes. it's like, uh, I'll try. <laughs> that's what you say. And then you just pocket the rest. Yeah, that's it. Just gonna shave the rest off the top. Um, but yes, Bennett then discovers that yes, he has to make Star Trek two on roughly a quarter of the budget of the uh, of the original motion picture. So he has to use standing sets. Um, that's why the model looks maybe a bit grubbier this time round. That's why probably the the special effects are a bit less uh, a central part of the narrative as it's unfolding. Why there is a generally smaller sense of scale, including a smaller number of extras and various things as well. Um, and basically the movie is kind of rushed again into production. And what basically happens is is kind of remarkable, which is that like Paramount is paying no real attention to this because they're treating it like, you know, when we talked about Jaws, we talked about like Jaws 3 and we talked about how studios didn't used to care about sequels. They just kind of like tossed them off. And it's like they bring in this guy who makes TV, give him a low budget and pay no attention to what he's doing. So Bennett is able to do like all this absolutely insane stuff, like hire Nicholas Meyer, who's this guy who has literally directed one feature film before this point. He's a novelist as well. He's a big Sherlock Holmes buff. Myers is apparently hired when he's having like dinner with one of the producers or he's like at a barbecue with one of the producers. And one of the producers is like, hey, you know, Star Trek, right? And he's like, yeah, that's the one with the dude with pointy ears, isn't it? It's like, you're hired. You got the job. So Myers kind of brought in. Um, they very famously... The scripts that they write are absolutely terrible. They settle on quite early the idea that they're going to bring back Khan, Noonie, and Singh. They also settle on quite early the idea that this is going to be a movie thematically about aging. And they won't figure out quite early on that they maybe want to bring in the idea of Kirk maybe having a son at various points or whatever. So there are all these ideas that kind of jut around. There are proposals like, what if Khan had psychic abilities? Uh, what if he was going to lead the Klingons in an invasion of Earth? All this sort of stuff that no. becomes like... <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, but like all this stuff that, you know, spoiler alert. They, for certain... they, they kept that in the vault for a bit, didn't they? <laughs> they? They did. They certainly did. We'll come back to that one when we get when we cover that movie. Um, but yeah, basically, um, they kind of they pitch that. Idea, they pitch these ideas. The scripts aren't working uh, very famously with 12 days to go before the first day of shooting. Can they I sit down with. All... Can I say sorry? But I, yeah. I think we just mentioned something. We're not going to cover that movie, but I'm happy to talk about that movie during this podcast. Oh, 
I like that's Andrew setting the terms. I admire yeah. that. Uh, so what, what what do you think? Are, 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 or do you think we ought to do an entire episode at some point on it? Because I watched it. I, I watched it last I, night. For oh, this, yeah, you yeah. watched Into Darkness for this. I did. You professionally, you're, you're a professional. Actor. You're a professional. <laughs> no, this is what <laughs> happens when you do like Star Trek movies. I also watched a good bit of the commentary, or bits oh. anyway. Yeah. Oh wow! Of of for the Wrath of Khan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Oh, so did you do you hear the story about like Myers rewriting the, or Meyer rewriting the script in twelve days? I didn't. I didn't. I, 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 I watched some of the start of it and then I thought like um I ought to actually watch the movie <laughs> <laughs> like as it's intended to be watched because it's been a while since I've seen it and I don't I and and my my kind of abiding memory wasn't like terribly positive. Oh, okay. So I should probably not just watch the um, the commentary. commentary and the pictures. Yeah. What I was doing was I was watching the commentary, but with the with the oh, uh, script and subtitles. So I was reading and reading something <laughs> that's different to what I'm listening to. Um, <laughs> but then I just watched the movie normally and I, uh, came came back and watched some of the other of kind the of commentary. Yeah. I do love, by the way, that this was me giving myself a week off, and Andrew's like, "No, no, 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 no! I will take, I will take the burden of all the research for this." So I do, I do appreciate you going full Darren on this. Not quite full um, Darren, like, like uh, semi Darren, uh, maybe, uh, like um, uh, the Diet Coke of Darren. What's well, Darren. actually out of curiosity, the wrath- seven percent solution. <laughs> nice. Um, out of curiosity, the uh, the commentary that you listened to was that the Manny Cotto one, Manny Cotto and Nicholas Meyer, right? Yeah, Nicholas right. Meyer is great. He is. He is. He's very. He's a very good conversationalist. Um, and Manny Cotto. Manny Cotto. You're not, not a big fan of Manny Cotto. Feeling less fond of Manny Cotto. I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Manny Cotto obviously went on to be the showrunner of the fourth and final season of Enterprise. Um, yeah. Which may make. No, he was also on the commentary. He, he definitely was. He was there. He was certainly present. No, um, I, 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 sorry, actually, that, that, that's unkind of me. I, I, I think. He was very much kind of like, I think, awed in the presence of Nicholas Meyer. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like he even said that. Yeah. And I, um, so the, 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 it's not, it's not fair of me to judge. And, and I, and, and I think some of it is because I didn't enjoy kind of, I didn't watch Enterprise and, and I, I kind of like, whenever it was kind of on, I would kind of really be happy that I wasn't watching it. Um, sort of thing. Yeah. I, we will probably talk about that later on because I think like one of the big parts of talking about the Wrath of Khan is its legacy. So okay, fine. We may not talk about Into Darkness in its own episode. We'll talk about the legacy of the Wrath of Khan maybe in the, later on in this episode. Then Darren says setting down a marker. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Then that's the teaser as well. Like the, not for not for what people might get if they subscribe to the Patreon, but there is no Patreon. We need people if you can find the paywall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We need people to tell us like. Uh, I, th- I think we need to grow the li- I think like we we we've had one suggestion so far I think or if there've been several there's been one person who's like there've been a- and you have a patreon <laughs> <laughs> we we have had it we've had a couple but I don't think it's quite sustainable is the thing like and that's the th- so it's like we're at the level where it's like if the podcast keeps growing maybe in a year or two it might be something we would talk about is kind of where I would be that would be my perspective because uh, we've had a so. we've had a big enough jump in the past year. We're talking. About yeah, it. that's it. Like we're having. We're talking about talking about it. Um, 
my people will talk to your people. Andrew's agent is really dragging his feet in this deal here. That's the thing. Um, but um, no, okay. So, Grad, so just we will talk about Manny Cotto. agent is very flash and he's always got like two mobile phones and is like sh- is shouting at um, their assistant. And, yeah. That's the way they ought to be. You don't get anywhere in this city. Yeah. I mean, you, you want a guy who's going to fight both for you and with you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, a complete asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, to bring us back to the Star Trek 2, like obviously the script was a complete mess. There were various drafts of it. No real idea of what the story was going to be, apart from the idea that it would involve Khan, it would be about aging, and it would maybe involve Kirk's son. Um, but basically Myers sat down with Harv Bennett and basically said, okay, so let's go through the script and let's figure out kind of what exactly we like. All these different drafts, all the elements that we like. What I'll do is I will rewrite the script from scratch. And Bennett was like, first of all, that's insane. That's not how you write a movie. Um, And second of all is in the 12 days between now and us starting shooting, we would not have time to change the actual contract deal to credit you as a writer on the movie. But Meyer was like, look, I'm young. I I kind of I'm, I'm very eager. I want to just get this done. So he writes, rewrites the entire script uh, in the bones of 12 days. Uh, by his own account, it's something of a fugue state. He can barely remember anything of what he wrote when he was writing. That's the way to do it. Like, um, generally, that's so. Is that not how everything is written? Um, no. Like, like I, I, um, I know you're. You're. Well, I mean, George R. R. Martin seems to be taking his time. You're more of a writer than 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 I am. But I, I, I know from from any time where I've had to write like a. Um, and it's generally for like um, for a college, or if to write something, and it's it's it yeah it it generally is kind of like that where I can't really tell anyone much about how that what you were actually how it yeah. happened it just it, what it, what 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 did I kind of write or yeah. I just I went into kind of a focus zone and then I came out and it was done. Yeah, I mean, I would kind of be like that. I would hesitate to describe myself as a like a, a writer or an expert on writing. But yeah, when I write, that is how I do it. It's like I do it over the course of like a weekend. You're more week. than I am. Yeah, I, I kind of lock myself in a room. I, I spend I do a lot of time on prep and research. I, I kind of map out roughly what I'm going to do. But the actual writing of it is, yes, I sit down in a room at a computer for like eight hours a day for three or four days or seven days. And at the end of it, I come out and I have something that is frankly terrible, uh, but it is something that is I can work on and polish and, and can, you know, hopefully turn into a book um, or, you know, some other kind of project. So that is that is how I do it. Darren says not being uh, not speaking with any authority. So yeah, but that's apparently it. Meyer basically did that. And <laughs> There's nobody else here there. <laughs> that, that is a fair point. Uh, this is why we normally have guests. Um, yeah. But yeah, but basically, so it went through. That is why Meyer doesn't have um, a credit on the screenplay. Uh, the screenplay is only credited to Jack Beast Awards. Um, even though, according to Bennett, everything that you see on screen basically came from Meyer. And like he, and again, you, you can see a lot of that there. Meyer is a big like Sherlock Holmes fan and stuff like that. But he's also a big fan of, you know, Horatio Hornblower. There yeah. is, I would argue, a certain literary sensibility to the Wrath of Khan that is quite palpable. Yeah, um, Homer, kind of the, the um, Homer's Odyssey kind of is, yeah. is a kind of an inspiration as well. He talks about that. 
the um, um, and I mean obviously the the Moby Dick is the big one as well. But yeah. even 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 smaller things like the use of we referenced it at the start, but a tale of two cities, which I think Meyer when he's asked about the inclusion of that he's like, yeah, I just needed a book where everybody knew the first line and everybody knew the last line. Um, that was why I chose a tale of two cities. <laughs> um, but like there there was this constant like back and forth and big battle between you know Meyer and Bennett on one hand and Roddenberry on the other about like what was and what wasn't kosher in the future. Like I believe like Meyer at one point had to fight over the idea of giving Kirk an actual book because Roddenberry's like we don't have books in the future we have computers we don't need books. Um, things like a no smoking sign on the bridge of the Enterprise which we'll include in the show notes where Roddenberry was like, people don't smoke in the future. And Meyer is like, of course they do. They're always going to smoke. In fact, you'll note that like we we already covered Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. You'll notice there's quite a few cigars in that movie, which is very much Meyer kind of just throwing down the gauntlet being like, yep, future smoking, inappropriate or otherwise. <laughs> is it inappropriate uh, for people to smoke in the future? According to Gene Roddenberry, yes. Um, and I guess, yeah, well, there, there are some... <laughs> That, that's, that's the one thing that they didn't get like it, like it got pads it got ipads it got phones like there's yeah. a there's a joke in uh deep space star Nine. wars there's definitely have that i feel like all those moped kids vape vape they yeah, the, the with the vespas you also watch book of boba fett <laughs> sorry i'm just i'm a little bit like, astounded by yeah. the, you know you know what at least with marvel i feel like at the moment i'm actually kind of enjoying it yeah with with Star Wars, it's such a slog. Like, like I, I, this is I, what fascinates me. Is that like? I, I'm sorry. I know this is the Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek, but it's like when we talk about Star Wars. Like, I'm not a huge fan of Star Wars, but I kind of admire it culturally. You, the vibe. I've never gotten a vibe from you where you're like Star Wars is something that like I'm actively interested in. I don't like the. Um, that, sorry, I'm probably being unfair. I kind of, uh, yeah, I'm kind of not interested. The, the, yeah, I, I I did really like um Rogue One. Yeah. And I think the the, the Are you so you'll be watching the Andor series when it comes out then, yeah? The start of um Return of the Jedi as well. It's quite good. Like the Jabba's Palace. Oh okay, okay, right, okay, cool. Yeah. And their barge. <laughs> the, the pleasure barge. Pleasure badge. <laughs> it's like the Emperor's yacht. You don't ask what happens on it. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, some of that stuff, um, I guess, I enjoy. Um, well, it does have puppets and stuff like that. I suppose Jabba's Palace has yeah. kind of puppets and that sort of like stuff, which is very Andrew-esque. Very kind <laughs> of like... No, no, but it's like when I when I think it's of like true. 80s... I, 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 do, I do think that things are like improved by um by puppets yeah and jabba's just a big puppet but you also have things like the little guy playing the drums and whatever and all the like cosmetic you know the prosthetics work they all have names (laughs) (laughs) they do but we're not getting into that they all have names and like really complicated tragic backstories um like like reading about how (laughs) (laughs) he died far far too young um Okay, but so to, to Star Trek 2, like, obviously there, there's this big battle that happens over it with Roddenberry. We'll talk about that in the spoiler zones. I don't know, again, how much of this isn't or isn't spoiler, so we're just going to jump right on into it. Andrew, do you think that Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, hmm. 
I guess um, there is a question about whether a whether 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 a Star Trek movie maybe deserves to be on the uh, top two fifty. I would I would venture to say no. Um, and then and then if but but if it were, if there would were, would this be the one? You know, would this, would this be, this the, be the one? And I guess it would be the consensus choice, right? It would seem to be. Yeah, like like it's like uh, Empire Strikes Back, um, with um, Star Wars. Yeah, the, that it's 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 generally kind of the 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 most um, people's most favorite one. Well, this is something maybe to kind of talk about a little bit, but it's certainly among fans, among people who consider themselves hardcore Star Trek fans, people who have, Mm. like, who love the franchise and people who went on to work on the franchise. You talk about, like, Manny Koto being kind of a devotee of the movie and, like, being awed by being in the presence of Nicholas Meyer. People like Ronald Ronald D. Moore, for example, they cite this as a massive influence on them as well. But the fact that, yeah, it's... it's, uh, it's generally cited as like a masterpiece of the genre by like magazines like Total Film and stuff like that. But yeah, it, among hardcore fans, yes, this is certainly the one, the big iconic one. I think there's a debate about general audiences, uh, and we'll maybe come back to that in a second when we talk about the movie's legacy. But yeah, I, I definitely, I think that's that's kind of fair. Mm. The great unwash. We'll come back to <laughs> the hoi polai. The um. Uh, John C. Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) Who grows corn. And he don't care. And would you put this? Would I? Do you you think this belongs to the list of the 250 greatest movies ever? Sorry, I'm cutting across you. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) The 250 greatest movies ever made. Uh, This is pure Shatner. Uh, We will come back to that. Um, If the motion picture was a showcase for for Nimoy, I think that this is a showcase for Shatner, but we'll come back to that one. Um, Uh, Nicholas Meyer had some interesting things to say on that. Oh, oh, I I don't doubt that. Um, No, no, um, not like... No, no. He he wasn't like... um, uh, scurrilous or anything no no yeah. um according to meyer like literally he he had a meeting with shatner um that went disastrously um uh, and then afterwards what happened is bennett explained to him what shatner was doing which was shatner shatner wanted to know that he would be treated as like the star of the show that is all that like shatner wanted from uh from bennett and from meyer and after that it was like okay fine i can i this is a good relationship and we can make this work yeah. Um, all right. So just for myself, then, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I think if you're putting a Star Trek movie on there, I think there's probably an argument for this or for The Voyage Home, where I think The Voyage Home is the one that is beloved by general audiences. I think like mm. when general audiences think of Star Trek, they think of the one with the whales. They think of the one that is accessible and kind of fun and kind of like is, you know, massively successful and kind of universally beloved and stuff. Whereas I think the Wrath of Khan is kind of the one where it's like, it's for fans. It's the one that we kind of take very yeah. seriously and it's very heavy and it like, I, yeah, we'll I, talk about the I legacy mean, of the Wrath of Khan. I guess fan, fans do like uh, the Voyage Home. So yeah, maybe it's, is that like the, 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 the best, like you can probably speak to it better than I would, but in in terms of um, satisfying um, both critics and fans and kind of meeting the most kind of in the middle, would that be? Yeah, I, that's the thing is that I think that there there's a very 
if you look at the history of Star Trek, there's a very interesting thing that happens about the Wrath of Khan and about the Voyage Home, right? Where the Voyage Home is released and it is a massive success. Everybody loves it. It is basically the reason why uh, Star Trek The Next Generation happens um, off the back of the success of the Voyage Home. Also off the back of the fact that the Voyage Home is so successful that like Nimoy and Shatner begin to price themselves out of the market in terms of Star Trek. <laughs> um, so but you you have this thing where like for decade for about a decade after the Voyage Home. It is the touchstone for Star Trek. Every big Star Trek story is in some way like a voyage home. So think of things like, say, Time's Arrow on Star Trek uh, The Next Generation, for example. Think of things like Past Tense in Deep Space Nine. Think of Future's End and Voyager. These are all big two-part event stories, but they're all modeled on... Think of the original, like, the original script. <laughs> it, too, was modeled on. it too was modeled on The Voyage Home, which wouldn't be released until when several it, it years later. It went back in the past. Wrote a script. <laughs> so you have like after after that, the idea is that every Star Trek story, every big Star Trek story is going to look like that. It's going to be like a big kind of time travel kind of fun adventure story. That's the default model. And then something interesting happens around about 96, which is the year that like First Contact comes out, which is the 30th anniversary of the franchise. And First Contact does like two stories in parallel, one of which is Picard does the Wrath of Khan, but with the Borg. And the other storyline is Riker does the voyage home. Oh, he's calm. Yeah. Yes. That, that's, that's, that's kind of fair, I think. Um, and then the second, the background story is we do funny, goofy, time travel comedy adventures with Riker and James Cromwell as Efren Cochran, which is very much like the voyage home. And what's interesting is that after that, you almost immediately get a switch where all of Star Trek starts leaning into the Wrath of Khan. It starts doing the Wrath of Khan over and over again. So you get things like, say, Star Trek Nemesis, which is like the Wrath of Khan, but with Tom Hardy. You get things like a three-part episode of the fourth season of Enterprise, which is structured as the Wrath of Khan. Episodes like, say, Bliss. Episodes like uh, Year, of, Year of Hell, Equinox, all this sort of stuff on Voyager, which is leaning very hard into the Wrath of Khan. Obviously, the original, the 2009 Star Trek, which is very much the Wrath of Khan, where Eric Bana is Khan, for example. Like, where mm. he literally just shouts, fuck! Uh, very much kind of evoking that. And then, obviously, you end up with, spoiler alert, but, like, Into Darkness, where, like, it's weird how, like, the Wrath of Khan kind of eats the Star Trek franchise. Like, from it, it begins as this thing that Star Trek fans really like, and then as people who are heavily influenced by it get involved with the franchise, it becomes this thing that kind of eats it alive from the inside. And that's the thing where I have, I find myself conflicted on it. Like, it has a legacy. It is important to cast a shadow in it to find Star Trek. But is is its legacy entirely good? Is no. it fair to? Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I think I think the answer is no. Uh, like kind of it because it's weird. Like insurrection is a kind of an anomaly, but it's also a, a like a, a somewhat good episode of like Star Trek: The Next Generation. Kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like well, it's it, very different from every other movie after uh, Generations. Like, every movie after Generations is a variation on the Wrath of Khan to one extent or another, apart from Insurrection, maybe. Yeah. Where it's just, it's, 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 um, it's, it's kind of, um, inconsequential. Like, it feels like, okay, that was an episode, you know? <laughs> that was a two-part, yeah, seven-season episode. We sent them out to shoot in California. Yeah. Uh, the cast and crew got to be on location. They had a good time. Uh, Patrick Stewart got to, he didn't get to ride a dune buggy, but he did get to splash around in a pool. Sorry, I'm eating chicken. <laughs> it's, it's good chicken. Which Reno just got me oh, some. Oh, that's lovely. It's a good chicken. I hope it's good chicken. It's okay, yeah. There's some goujons. 
Katrina um, had some very astute observations about Star Trek. Oh, um, okay, cool. Which uh, may, may, maybe I'll save them. Oh, okay, all right. She's welcome to make them herself if she wants as well. Um, no, I, that's I, not okay. I, <laughs> I don't think that's maybe a she would lower herself. <laughs> that is very fair. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll say we'll save Patrina's Star Trek corner for later on. Would this be on your own personal two hundred and fifty? Your own two hundred and fifty favorite movies? Um, no, no, it wouldn't. Actually, uh, no. And how is, is now the time to have the conversation? Because when we talked about the motion picture, you were quite down on it. You described this as a very sweaty movie uh, in a very literal sense, and I think you also I, kind of I, described. I I I feel like it was less glistening this time around. <laughs> but I I like the the whole thing of like um I think it's very difficult for it retrospectively to kind of you know when you watch something that kind of young it it you can you can definitely go back to something that you loved and and realize that it's rubbish um but still kind of have some affection for it but it, it's difficult to kind of come back to something that you kind of liked but had misgivings about and preferred the other movies like uh, definitely preferred journey home and star trek 6 the undiscovered country but it, it, it it's it i it, 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 it's it's i didn't but I, I guess because i kind of knew what problems i had with it i didn't really find them so much of an issue like I just kind of, you know, I was past it, and um, and it's really not um, as um, oily um, as I as I remembered. Like you know, the Chippendales kind of. Yeah, um, <laughs> the the exotic dancers, the perfect male specimens that were hired. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I guess yeah, that that is kind of the thing where it's hard to separate this from kind of everything that kind of followed it. You know, and I guess it's kind of hard to watch it in a vacuum or to get a sense of what it was like in 1982, where this was, I suppose it was radically different from any Star Trek to that point, which is why it's so startling to go back now when there is so much Star Trek that looks quite like it. Yeah. Because if you're watching this in 1982, this is alien. This is, this is a completely different way of making Star Trek than anything you've seen to this point. Well, it's, it's also alien in the sense that it's a a sci-fi horror. That is fair. Um, it also yeah. has it also has alien-esque creatures, things that crawl around inside people, maybe or maybe not. <laughs> Get inside your body and do things to you. Um, exactly. But uh, yeah, so I, it, that's yeah. I guess that's a kind of a no for you. That's a no. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 like it, it kind of had a hill to climb to, to be um, on my list. But like, also, I think I said on the. Uh, when we did the motion picture, um, or perhaps when we did Undiscovered Country, that it's also possible that I would just bring all of the Star Trek movies. <laughs> you know, even I'll, five, even the Final Frontier. Yeah, I mean, yeah, may, may, maybe. I, I, um, what does God need with a starship? And um, or like, I think it's the first ten. Like maybe I'd bring. You'd bring Nemesis as well. Interesting. I think I, like I, I currently own them. So there's the, the fe- <laughs> fear of loss. You know, you you don't want... Because uh, if you're told that you have to bring um, like 250 movies to Good Movie Island, um, you don't want to hand over your Star Trek You don't want to leave some behind. Leave some yeah, behind. you don't want to leave them. That's it. You also don't want the, an incomplete set as well. That's, That's it. That's the thing, yeah. yeah. It's worthless. Uh, 
not not worthless, <laughs> but like if you wanted to to exchange it with like the local tribes and stuff. Yeah, you couldn't barter yeah. with if it was just like Star Trek's one through four and like six through nine. Right. You want one through ten, but not one through thirteen. Crucially, I, I suppose if you if you gave, uh, say like. One and two, five and six, <laughs> to to one kind of tribe, and then you gave three and four and three seven, and four. eight, and I guess nine, and then give ten to the other one, um, and then they're fighting amongst each other to try and unite the um, Star Trek movies while while you live in peace. This does feel like a Star Trek episode of some description. <laughs> I think so. It's like, but, <laughs> but they arrive. They arrive on an alien planet no, and put the DVDs in the player. And Salem Jens appears to explain that they're all part of the same uh, alien <laughs> DNA experiment. <laughs> Um, but you're the same. It's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> I am Star Trek 1, <laughs> one 2, oh, six, yeah. 7, and 10. Whereas they are Star Trek 3, 4, and 9. <laughs> but yes, um, for myself, maybe. Like I, I, <laughs> for, for myself, I do. I, I think maybe in a push. I, I love this movie. I maybe like it a bit less than four, a bit less than six, as you said. I like it probably a bit less than, say, First Contact. Controversially, I maybe, I don't know how I feel about it compared to Into Darkness. I have, I have a huge soft spot for Into Darkness, which we'll probably get into. That's interesting, uh, in yeah. I, 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 I kind of, um, I feel like I've, I've, I've some good things to say about Into Darkness. And I guess some... Um, uh, Exactly. Less good things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think maybe. I think this has a very, very good chance of getting in there. It just it wouldn't be at the top of my own personal Star Trek rankings. Um and again, I don't know how much of that is just like a response to being told forever that it is the best Star Trek movie ever. And as you said, the inescapability of like knowing that its influence on the franchise was not entirely brilliant. Um, knowing that like the shadowy cast maybe put the franchise down some creative dead ends that it kind of spent decades trying to escape. And, you know, if, if, if I were being entirely cynical and generalizing about it, and I guess that is, this is the place for it. I have a podcast. I might as well pontificate. I think that that moment where you go from the voyage home being like the default mode of like populist Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan being the default mode of populist Star Trek is the point at which the franchise enters decline. Right. Like if you're to pick a moment where Star Trek starts alienating casual viewers, where it stops being appointment viewers, you know, where it stops being something that like normal people watch like it was during the next generation era, because the next generation yeah. was syndicated. It was a massive commercial hit. It was, everybody watched cover it. of RT guide. And I'm sure like, yeah, the uh, radio times. It got an Emmy primetime Emmy nomination. Yeah. Yeah for like best drama in its seventh season after the 30th anniversary it becomes kind of this downhill slog i mean by 1999 which is only three years after like first contact yeah you have like articles like what is the trouble with trek is the franchise doomed is the franchise over the hill you start to see ratings decline and like 
as this is happening, you see the franchise kind of leaning more into the Wrath of Khan. It's... So like, you know, the year that uh, First Contact comes out, you have like Deep Space Nine revealing that Bashir is an augment like Khan, Nuni and Singh. You have, um, you know, for the uniform doing like Cisco hunting down the Maquis, hunting down Eddington. Another riff on Moby Dick, although that time I think it's framed through the lens of Les Miserables, for example. The year after that, you have Janeway going kind of full Ahab, you know, full kind of like spaceship battle uh, in, in kind of like Year of Hell, for example. And then you, you can chart all sorts of other examples, particularly with Janeway, written by kind of Branham Braga, where you have episodes, you know, like, for example, uh, off the top of my head, Bliss, where the ship is almost kind of swallowed by a nebula. But it's it's there's an alien there played by is it W. Morgan Shepard, who's hunting it down again, riffing on Moby Dick. You've episodes like, say, Equinox, where Janeway's pursuit of another Starfleet vessel, you know, is is very much like, again, very Ahab-esque, very like driven by this idea of betrayal and revenge. Mm. You have like the, the fourth season of Enterprise overseen by Manny Cotto devoting a three episode arc to, you know, the the. A bunch of augments created from, you know, Khan's DNA or the DNA of Khan's followers. And, and then, like, you later on in that season, you have, you know, the, the two-parter where it's revealed that Klingons have forehead ridges because of... Sorry, Klingons lose their forehead ridges because of genetic engineering uh, related to Khan. Again, it's it's all very, like, in-jokey, jo- in kind of circle-jerky kind of stuff it's- that's obsessed with, like, the Wrath of Khan as a blueprint for, like, the right way to make Star Trek. And I know... Like, it's not a direct causation, and it's not to blame this this movie for that. It's not the Wrath of Khan's fault. It's not Nicholas Mayer's fault that, like, so much of Star Trek that came after it, like, you know, just leaned really hard into it and became really insular and really alienating to casual fans. And I, and I, I should be clear here, I, I love all this stuff. I mean, like, you, you <laughs> joked, I think, on a previous episode, like... I love all of Star Trek, even the bad stuff. I'll stand up for, well, I won't necessarily stand up for all of Voyager, but there are lots of Voyager episodes that I love. Yeah. Uh, like, I'll really love the third and the fourth season of Enterprise, even as they, you know, the fourth season in particular gets very, very fan wanky. But like, it, watching all of Star Trek from beginning to end, you get a real sense of the, the franchise kind of like pushing casual viewers away, pushing those viewers who, as we talked about, kind of tuned in for uh, the, the next generation. Uh, and kind of just pushing them away and becoming like more fixated on emulating the Wrath of Khan, devoting, copying the Wrath of Khan. It's... And and I, I kind of, I just feel that's, it's hard for me to separate it's... what that influence was from the movie itself, if we're being entirely honest. And I think that the movie itself is, is absolutely great, to be clear. It, it made, it made Star Trek fans think that they could like, you know, um, no, I was going to say lose their virginity. <laughs> Um, okay. No, no. <laughs> I think no, that, okay. that, that's that, that's dumb. Sorry, that, that, um, that's not big or clever. No. Um, and we 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 say as two Star Trek fans on this podcast, yeah, who've yet to. Um, can, yeah. I, can can I can I say um, um, the the can stuff is maybe not what makes this good, but it's kind of the thing that. Um, people have latch on. Yeah, to. yeah. I guess. Well, it's because Montalban's performance is so iconic. It is like, great. It's, it's a yeah. brilliant performance, and like he looms large. Like I'm looking. Look at the poster by Bob Peak, and it's like it's Khan looming large over absolutely everything. But, and like, if you look at gifts from this movie, it's like William Shatner shouting the name Khan, or it's like Ricardo Montalban having like an evil gasm 
as he sits back in his chair talking about how he buried him alive um, or quoting Moby Dick. Like, like the can performance is huge and I think it's a major part of the movie's appeal, but I don't think it's the heart of the movie. No, I don't think it's necessarily what makes it great in the sense of, you know, being a movie that is about things. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I, think, I think that's maybe a fair, fair point to make. And I think like, and but I think it's also the fact that his name is in the title as well. Yeah. Like, He's the only, is he the only Star Trek villain who has his name in the title? I'm trying to run very quickly through them now. Unless we, the search for Spock, is Spock the real villain of the search for Spock? But he's the only character apart from Spock who ends up with his name in a title of a Star Trek movie. Beyond. Um, which is, <laughs> Beyond is, is the, is the real enemy of Star Trek. That's, <laughs> that was the name of Idris Elba's character, right? It was Mr. Beyond. Um, Mr. Yond. Beyond. Um, Barry Yond. But yes, Okay, so for me, that's a kind of a qualified yes. The name's Yond. Beyond. Beyond. But that's that's why people keep asking him. Like the, exactly. all the newspapers keep that reporting it as like, is he going to be? Is he going to be the next Bond? It's like, no, I was already Beyond. Um, but yes. Um, so I guess the answer to that is a qualified maybe. It's probably in my two fifty. It's probably quite low. It's not my favorite Star Trek movie. But Andrew, if listeners have not seen Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Would you recommend that they pause the podcast? And if this is the weekend that we're releasing it, go to the cinema to see it or just stream it on, say, Paramount Plus, uh, Blu-ray, DVD, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I would. I'd, I'd, I'd recommend that people watch it. There there are um, fantastic performances in it. Uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy, Shatner, uh, Ricardo Montalban. Um, the music is fantastic. Um, James Horner's James score, Horner. which is amazing. Yeah. I, I think they were saying, kind of in the commentary, that, that I think Manny Cotto was saying, obviously he's a huge fan, but he he was like arguing for being like amongst like the the top kind of you know soundtracks um, of any movie. Um, but they're 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 well. This was the one that established him as an A list composer. Like that's the thing. It's that it. This was the one that kind of like put him on the map. To be fair, mm. it was it was also one that it was cheap. It was again like everything else involved in the movie. He was like the cheapest option because he wasn't an established like composer yet. And he's kind of talked about how he kind of resents the fact that like when he signed on, they were like, "You're gonna do the next one, right?" And he's like okay yeah sure and it's like <laughs> then he becomes massively successful and he's kind of like has to do star trek 3 um because he, he's the man of his word um and i i think as well that it's uh it's a movie that's um that's funny at times it's a it's a good kind of a horror movie if you're into that sort of thing um where it can really make your um skin uh squirm yeah um which i i, I think was kind of um what I didn't kind of warm to about it, but but I but I know that there are a lot of people who enjoy that. It's also kind of a it it's um it has a good kind of a, a tonal balance and also a good yeah. um a pacing that the yes. that that the first Star Trek movie kind of lacked. Um, and it's about stuff too. Yes, like the it 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 is, and I I guess in on. Back to the point about tonal balance is that it, it's 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 also very sad, yeah. Um, yeah so the, 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 if 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 you enjoy that in a movie the way I do, um, then this might be a movie for you. There's a lot of things that it kind of delivers on. Yeah, like we said, kind of the 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 stuff that people really glom to wasn't even the kind of 
uh, most admirable stuff. The stuff yeah. that I that I would argue is brilliant. Exactly, yeah. or, 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 or me, I don't, I, I don't think so. Yeah, it, it 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 has it has quite a bit for for most people. What about yourself, Darren? What do you think? Absolutely not unequivocally fantastic. Like this is a, an amazing movie. It's a joy to revisit. It's just it is a movie that works, as you said, on multiple levels. It is a movie that works just as a joyous cinematic roller coaster. It's propulsive. It has a very clear arc. It has a very clear story. It knows what it's doing, and it gets to where it's going remarkably quickly. It is incredibly lean, particularly when you've come out of watching the motion picture. But it is also, as you said, a movie that is incredibly rich, like textually, thematically, in terms of character. It's a moment where, like I. I think this is the best Kirk story that has ever been told. Um, I think this is the best story about Kirk. I think there is a solid argument that this is Shatner's best performance uh, as Kirk. I think the the Undiscovered Country is probably also in that category, which may be one of the reasons why I like that movie as well. Uh, but I also think that, yeah, it's it's just, it's a wonderful piece of cinema. If you are a Star Trek fan, it is like one of the cornerstones of Star Trek going forward is hugely influential for better and for worse. But it's also an example of like Star Trek redefining itself. It's This is one of the first times that Star Trek really does reinvent itself from the ground up. It proves that you can take the franchise and do something that is completely different from anything the franchise has ever done before. And it can work. And it's kind of like, that's what I think is for, for me a little bit frustrating about like the legacy of it, where like the legacy of the Wrath of Khan should be well, you can do anything with Star Trek. Yeah. You can reinvent it and you can rebuild it. The, and instead, the legacy seems to be, no, you could just do the Wrath of Khan again and again and again. Yeah, you get somebody like Nicholas Meyer who doesn't really yeah. have any um, baggage. Like, he, he the, the, yeah. the, the, the movie starts with, like, I think it says, like, it's the year 22... Um, as as if nobody's ever watched a Star Trek yeah, movie or, before. Or, as if like it's assuming you're coming into this completely blind and need to be introduced to Star Trek. He he says that he when he was doing that initially, he did it because for his like father, say, who yeah. didn't watch um, science fiction movies, you know, because they were kind of like you know B yeah. movies and a bit like sillier for kids. But he uh, watching it watching it now, he thinks like, oh, no, that's kind of for me. You know, it's me. It's me saying, "Okay, this is what I'm. I'm watching now because he's uninitiated." Yeah. Um, and same thing with Bennett as well. Bennett was similarly kind of like not hugely familiar with the intricacies of the Star Trek universe. And again, this is something that we'll we'll come back to when we get into the spoilers. And one of the big things about the Wrath of Khan is that it's this battleground in a way that again feels very like pop culture in 2022. But like the Wrath of Khan is a battleground between two factions within Star Trek, where one of those factions is traditionalist, serve the fans, give the fans what they want, honor them, respect them, stay within color within the lines, write 12 page memos about how people don't smoke in the future, uh, how people don't have unprotected sex in the future, all that sort of stuff, because that's what Gene Roddenberry imagined the franchise would be like. And the other half of it is people like Mayer, people like Bennett coming in and saying, no, let's let's just tell a good story about these characters. Let's figure out what makes them tick. Let's apply a fresh perspective. And the Wrath of Khan is one of those cases where the the argument that won was the new fresh perspective that kind of found a, a hot angle on these characters and was able to kind of fight back and beat back the people who are like, no, that's not what Star Trek is. I mean, Bennett's come out and said, like, whenever he was arguing with Roddenberry, Roddenberry would just spout the four words, this is not Star Trek, or five words, this is not Star Trek. 
as if that would win the argument. Like famously, he'd, he'd ring up Arthur C. Clarke and he'd be like, tell him this isn't Star Trek. And he'd be like, what are you doing, Gene? Why are you bothering Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov about whether or not like Sarah Savak can be half Romulan and half Vulcan? What, what is going on here? But it's kind of interesting that like the Wrath of Khan works because it's not so reverential to what came before. It's not so devoted to the idea of like what Star Trek was is what Star Trek always should be. Um, but I guess that, that's probably something maybe I'll kind of unpack a bit when we get later on into the spoiler zone. So with that in mind, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Eat this chicken. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Boy, the zone! The zone! The zone! So, Andrew, what is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, about for you? Um, it's about growing old. It's about friendship. And it's about death. Um, I think those are the things that it's about. And it's, it's about this character, Kirk, realizing that he's wrong about everything. And um, what he's kind of lived his, and it's a it's a it's a kind of a Kirk trope as in a way, in in that um, it's him discovering that his way of being is 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 kind of wrong, realizing that he kind of he knows nothing. Yeah, that his his um, his cleverness that has gotten him this far isn't um sufficient enough yeah there there um there 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 are more important things than being clever there there is there is wisdom you know that he, that he hasn't yet um uh, accrued because he's managed to avoid consequences for yeah. his actions he's managed to avoid he's again been been rather reckless like you mentioned the idea of like kirk having a son and like that being central to the film kind of early on and it is notable that like one of the changes between the shooting script and the finished movie is that in the shooting script, sorry, in the finished movie, he says to Carol Marcus, why didn't you tell him? Um, in the script, Kirk says, why didn't you tell me? Where the implication is that Kirk didn't even realize in the script that he had a son, that David Marcus was his son until they arrived on that planet, until he was actually confronted with him. But yeah, you do have this idea that Kirk has been basically living his life as a kind of a cavalier man about the universe. And in this movie is kind of confronted with all of that coming home to Bruce. And I think, you know, Khan is obviously an example of that where like Khan is a villain from space seeds, you know, an episode from the first season of the show where at the end, Kirk just like dumps this genocidal dictator on an alien planet, kind of rubs his hands together and says, well, that's that problem dealt with. Nobody's ever going to have to deal with that that guy ever again. That's a chicken that'll never come home to roost. <laughs> yeah. No consequences, baby. Um, Mark my words. I'm not coming back here. Um, ever again. To, to reap what I've sown. Yeah. I'm also not going to tell anybody about what I did. Like, like that's one of the most interesting things about the movie is the sense in which, like, you get that not only did Kirk just, like, dump basically space Hitler on this planet in the middle of nowhere, like, unilaterally, without, like, any, like, 
due process or any like bringing him back to earth for questioning or anything like that but also seemingly he didn't tell anybody because the only way that like terrell realizes that he he went after a terrorist without due process (laughs) and he he did something against regulations for which he did not write a report This is this this is uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, it, which 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 is also basically the Wrath of God. Um, it is a remake of a sort of sorts, and it, yeah. and it, and it is kind of um, Kirk um, uh, as Kirk often does, realizing uh, that he's wrong about things, or that what has gotten him this far won't um, get him across the finish line. Yeah, it's a it's about growth. Um, and it stars Peter Weller, the star of Robocop. <laughs> Obligatory Robocop <laughs> Obligatory reference. Obligatory Robocop reference. Um, but like to, to focus on the Wrath of Khan for a moment, because I think we'll, we will talk about Into Darkness kind of later on uh, a bit as well, I think. Absolutely. But I do think that with the Wrath of Khan, I like that idea of, and again, this is one of those things where it works on multiple levels, where it works as just like basic good human character drama, where it's like, when everybody gets old, you are faced with the consequences of your action. You're also faced with the inevitability of growing old. Like that, that the bit at the start of this where like Spock gifts, the fact that this takes place on Kirk's birthday, the fact that Spock kind of gifts him a copy of like a tale of two cities, the fact that like McCoy brings him Romulan ale and prescription glasses as well, because his sight is failing. And the idea, you know, obviously, like, even beyond that, the idea that he's now an admiral, he's Admiral Kirk, and he's no longer flying the Enterprise and kind of what that means for him. And then the idea that you have running through this where, like, one of the things I actually really like about the Wrath of Khan is the sense that it is somewhat ambivalent about Kirk, where, like, early on, you have, like, McCoy telling Kirk to get his command back, because if you don't, you'll die, you need to get out there, you need to be on the ship. But then you also have the idea that, like, Kirk being on that ship is what, like, leads the ship going after Khan, which leads the death of, like, all these young people. Like, that's the real tragedy of the movie, is the idea that you have the death of Scotty's nephew, who's the engineering kind of executive who's introduced, the guy who didn't run from his post when all the others fled. You also and have, like, the sequence with is Khan. It, where Isn't sorry. that a thing where it's not really, where... It's not established as kind of explicitly in the movie as it is in the script. Yeah, and in the in the director's cut, which is in theaters this weekend, also includes like other scenes as well, where it makes it clear that it is Scotty's nephew. Yeah. Uh, whereas those scenes the were cut. Deleted yeah. scenes. Yeah. But like, yeah, but you and you also then even have things like say, um, you know, you have the the character, the number two character to Khan, his kind of sidekick, and who's like, look, you have reliant. You, you can go anywhere. We are completely free. We have no obligations. Mm. And Khan is like, no, I'm going to pursue this like petty vendetta. I'm going to relive my youth. I'm going to chase down and defeat Kirk. I'm going to be defined by my past. And you have the idea that the two of them are kind of locked together in this combat. And obviously, you know, Khan is the villain of the movie. Uh, without Khan, there'd be no like mass slaughter or death. But there is also the sense in which Kirk is at least complicit in that. Like the moment where he says, like he acknowledges that he was caught with his pants around his ankles because he didn't follow procedure, because he didn't listen to Savak, because he didn't go by the book. And as a result of that, like members of the crew die um, and that sort of stuff where there is this kind of sense of the movie being like, yes, Kirk is getting to have his one last grand adventure. But that adventure comes with a tremendous cost. And obviously, you know, the cost is the cadets who die, but is also Spock. Like, I think that's kind of the genius of this movie is the fact that, like, 
and I think it's a problem with Into Darkness, uh, which we'll talk about like now or later. But like yeah, in Into Darkness, like, it, 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 it takes some of the it, moments of this, and first of all, kind of like plays them for um, kind of fans to kind of like cheer and go like, whoa, and remember, yeah, remember that time when, yeah, and and. Remember that, yeah, where where it means nothing because there's no weight established to no to 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 most people, but it, it's delivered in such a way that you know it's meant to kind of and it's 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 a real kind of bum note of that movie for for for, for me. Also, the 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 can I the, the, can I push can I just push back slightly on that because like one of my fondest memories of like the two J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies is going with my partner at the time who was in no way a Star Trek fan. Yeah. And like that moment where like Benedict Cumberbatch, spoiler for, I guess, Into Darkness, where uh, he says, I am Khan. Um, and like I'm sitting there going, this makes no sense. I'm a Star Trek fan. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And my partner like nudges me in like the shoulder, like really excitedly and goes, that's Khan. And it's like that person that they had never watched a Star Trek episode before. They had just through cultural osmosis absorbed that Khan was important. And like that really worked for them, like gangbusters, because it was like now I'm being invited into well, is it the fact into that, this secret club. Is it the fact that the movie is named after him that like people are just kind of aware of it? Yeah. Like, or or the fact that like that mimetic shot of like obviously Shatner screaming into the calm, going calm. Yeah, like the fact that that's the mimetic kind of like when people talk about Shatner's performance style, which I'm sure we'll talk about kind of later on. But like when you think about like Shatner's overacting, it's you know, it's obviously the oh, no, I don't know what I'm doing. But it's also the con with the bugging eyes and the open mouth. So like, yeah, I, I kind of I, I'm gentler for into dark towards into darkness uh, than others for that reason, because like it, for me, I was like, this makes no sense. This doesn't make any sense in terms of continuity. This doesn't make any sense in terms of why is well, he? You're gentler on it because it's like people um, who weren't you kind of got got, got something out. Like that that that's the reason I don't like kind of Star Trek and why um, the J.J. Abrams. Star Trek and, and the, 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 the reason I guess that to a lesser extent but still that I don't like Into Darkness because it's not something that <laughs> I like it doesn't matter how many other people enjoy it or if I'm like in the company of other people that enjoy it like that that, that, that doesn't that doesn't do anything um, you know I, I, for for me, the thing about those movies was getting to share them with like people who wouldn't normally be huge Star Trek fans and getting them to enjoy and that them being happy to be included. Like that, that, like again, this is the weird thing with nerd culture, where like nerd culture has kind of taken over the world. But like when you watch like into when you watch Star Trek and Into Darkness, and you watch it with non fans, there is this sense like that they are being kind of let inside the tent. Where it's like, and Andrew's like, and then they just make a mess all over it. But it's like, no, but they feel like they're kind of, sorry, that was unfair. I shouldn't have said that. But it's like, well, ra- ra- they get... rather, rather than be in the tent uh, uh, <laughs> pissing out than <laughs> they're, they're outside the tent. the tent pissing in. Isn't that the expression? Uh, is that what you mean? Yes. No, okay, that that is not what I meant at all. But um, I, I do think that, like, I... I find a great deal of value in that. I liked sharing those movies with people who were not necessarily hardcore Star Trek fans and then like feeling weirdly welcomed because a lot of nerd culture, particularly things like say Star Trek 
can feel alienating to people where it's like there's so much of it and there's so much lore and there's so much backstory and there's a sense of these being like big popular successful blockbusters where it's like okay he's Khan that's cool I know that name and now I get to see a movie with Khan in it and he's and he's played by Benedict Cumberbatch Khan Noonien Singh Darren, yes, re- played by played by a Mexican actor and a British actor. Remember, um, remember, we in, in school we used to do those talent shows, um, and and that one year there there was, I think it was like, uh, one of the kind of more senior years. This is when we we were a bit younger. He was like a stage manager, and his name was Ian. Oh yes. Um, and he 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 asked you if you were taking part that year. He's, he's like, do do, um, can you, uh, you know, can 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 you can you do, a um an an act this year? And 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 you were about to answer, and it was like, no, a second question, um, what time suits you best? Can you go on at like eleven forty five, maybe twelve, um, and then he's like the third question. Um, are you going to do like a dramatic piece? Are you going to do a bit of acting, or or or, or um, or will you be will you be seen? And you said, um, I I uh, first of all I can, uh, noon Ian, uh, sing. Nice, nice. I appreciate it. By the way, fun fun fact about it is that um, apparently the reason why. Roddenberry keeps coming back to names that sounded like Khan Noonien Singh. So, like, by the way, right. what is Data's creator's name? What is the name of Data's creator? Is, is it Noonien Singh? Noonien Sung. Noonien Sung. But yes. Yeah. Um, but the reason why uh, Roddenberry keeps coming back to those is because I believe he served with a gentleman in the Second World War that he wanted to reconnect with. And the plan, he was just like, if I keep putting that name out there, eventually maybe he might see it somehow and get back to me. I don't know if he ever did. Um, but that's why he kept recycling that name in terms of like premise and backstory. Wow. So yeah, so that's why uh, you have you have Khan Noonien Singh, and you also have obviously Noonien Sung, and the fact that they sound so similar to one another, which is one of those great Star Trek nerd facts. Um, hey. Star Trek nerd fact. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, like that, that is the thing about like Into Darkness that I'm kind of fonder of is the bit because I have the memory of like somebody at the time kind of just being like, this is I, I feel like I'm being let inside something that has very previously been inaccessible to me. Well, it, that is, it's, you know, but, but that's what it is. But it's it is that in the most kind of crass kind of way. Not, I mean, there there are things to like about it, but it's it's J.J. Abrams. Like, I know we just spoke about Nicholas Meyer, but J.J. Abrams is coming at it, not from like a literary point of view. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's no, it's, no, it's, he's coming it's, from very, very Spielbergian kind of like blockbuster. Very. Yeah. And it's like television and it's kind of it's Star Trek 90210. There's bling ons. It's Star Trek World Police as well. Like you did, there, there's there's a scene in um, Star Trek Into, Into Darkness. Darkness, which is exactly like the scene from um, uh, uh, Team America World Police, <laughs> but without puppets, which makes things better. Um, <laughs> when they're 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 in their ship and they're having an argument, um, like between Ahura and uh, and Spock, where they're meant to be kind of like saving the world, but they're having this kind of argument and then and then they get shot down like that that is like beat for beat <laughs> um, <laughs> team, team america, america. work please 
So it's Star, it's Star Trek uh, wordplay. Yeah, and, and look, this this isn't necessarily the, the time or, or the place to talk about it with like in, Into Darkness and kind of the Khan reveal and how it doesn't really make any sense and how it, it emulates all of like everything that you said is true and uh, all that sort of stuff. But it it does feel like for a little while that ripped the Band-Aid off mm. and like the franchise kind of pushed away from doing Khan stuff for a little while. Yeah. Where it's like the second season of Picard is like a riff on um, the Voyage Home, for example. Uh, you have you have things like, you know, the undiscovered country being a touchstone for the first season of Star Trek Discovery, all, all, all that sort of stuff. It really does feel like taking the Wrath of Khan out of circulation by kind of neutralizing it, by just like straight up remaking it arguably kind of maybe suck the poison for the wound at least for a little while but again you say that but like right now you have like strange new worlds has like a a character called lan noonian singh in it um who is a direct descendant of khan um you know you have a you know the rise of indicta on uh lower decks which is like again riffing very consciously on on the wrath of khan as a template uh so it is creeping back in around the edges but i do think that you know there are very serious issues with it, but it does in some ways it felt at the time like it was kind of drawing that venom out from the wound and kind of getting that out of the franchise's system for a little while. So it could kind of try and do new or different things, at least, you know, for, for a couple of years. Uh, yeah. Okay. But to get back to talking about, like, the Wrath of Khan and kind of the thing that I, we were talking about there about the idea of it being about, like, being older and kind of coming back to stuff. I also quite like the idea that, like, one of the big central, when you watch the Star Trek movies, particularly the original Star Trek movies, one of the big recurring motifs is this interesting idea you get, which is these are television characters from the 60s. And what happens when you drop them into movies where the laws are very different, where the rules of making movies are very different, where, like, Kirk is like, look... I was on a 60s TV show. We did like 80 episodes, week in, week out, no con- no real continuity between them whatsoever. I got to have all the sex I wanted on Alien Planets. I got to dump alien despots on Alien Planets with no consequences whatsoever. And then the irony is, oh no, wait, now I'm in a feature film. I have to have like a proper character arc that's built around me. There has to be this big dramatic tension that runs through it. There have to be consequences that accrue from my actions. And I kind of love that, you know, as... One of those franchises where obviously you went from television to TV. And I'm trying to think of like, are there other big examples of like franchises going from TV to film aside from say Loaded Weapon or kind of national, not national, not Loaded Weapon, uh, the the Police Squad movies. There's a Nielsen Naked Gun. Yes. Naked Gun, Police Squad. Yeah. But I'm trying to think, are there other big examples of movies that transition from... Well, they also have Ricardo Montalban. That's the... the uh, they do indeed. Yeah. That's the bridging factor there. But I think there aren't really that many franchises I can think of that have gone from TV to film, aside from Star Trek. I know there are probably people yeah. shouting at the podcast I mean, right now. Thank you. That's right. You wrote a book on X-Files, right? I, I did, but they I don't consider that. They have no. two movies, one of which nobody saw. I don't consider that a film franchise. One of the films was released in the middle of the TV show still being on. Yeah. Um, I don't quite consider that a transition. It was a big me. deal at the time, though, right? It was. Fight the Future was a big deal. Although I do love that the sixth season of the X-Files begins with Mulder whining about Men in Black. He's like, I didn't see Men in Black this summer. Thank you very much. Because um, <laughs> I'm a true X-File fan. Um, but like, yeah, so you have this kind of idea that's like, what if we take these characters and we drop them to movies? And again, like, maybe we'll talk about Star Trek 4. Maybe we won't. But Star Trek 4 is very much like, I suppose what, what if you take these 60s characters and drop them in Reagan's America? X-Files already had characters with kind of um, backstories and consequences and, you know, an arc. 
Oh yeah, well then, because it's nineties yeah. television. Yeah. yeah, it's nineties television. But like, I I just like the idea of this being like Kirk has been a TV character, so there's no continuity, there's no serialization, there's no long term consequences for any of his decisions, and then you drop him into like an eighties movie, and all of a sudden he has pathos, which he didn't really have on the show. Like in the show, like one week he'd discover that his brother and his entire brother's family was dead, and it would just never be mentioned again. Um, that sort of stuff or like he'd have Spock wipe his memory or Ohora would have her memory like wiped by a like sentient evil computer probe in the changeling and it would just never be mentioned again whereas now it's like no 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 this is this is a movie it has to be we have like it's got to be literary it's got to have this kind of idea of character in a way that we didn't really have when we were kind of on a show but again maybe that's just me being uh, a 60s show a 60s yeah that's very fair it's like I I think when uh... With O'Brien, like there, there were, um, you know, his 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 um, marriage, I think, was difficult after the whole kind of like being in in prison for a lifetime. In in, in an hour, like like, but that I, kind of thing I love about O'Brien is O'Brien, like O'Brien, is almost like a character who's defined by taking these science fiction concepts and like playing them as tragedy. Where it's like, oh, he's stuck in a time loop. But that just means he dies over and over and over again. That's horrible. It's like, oh, he's been replaced by an android. But oh no, the android is having an identity crisis and psychological breakdown and is completely paranoid about the nature of its existence. Oh, cool. He's been arrested and sentenced to futuristic sci-fi jail. But it has scarred him and left him suicidal and wanting to take his own life in a cargo bay. He, he is also somebody who, before we even meet him, is a... Um someone who arguably has already um, experienced post-traumatic stress because he, he has, has been in, in, in wars. I think yeah. with the, in like the, the Cardassian war and stuff yeah. like that. Like, I mean, like, again, we're going down the beaten track here, but the thing about O'Brien as a character is you take the science fiction nonsense of Star Trek and you apply it to a human being where it's like, oh, his daughter fell in a, like a portal and now she's like 27 years old and he's completely lost her childhood. And it's like, what is the human consequence of that? And O'Brien's like, please just make it stop. Please let me die. Um, but like, kind of... I. You could argue, I think, that maybe Kirk goes through kind of something similar here, where it's like all the stuff that he t he kind of taken for granted was was kind of there. But like, oh, how we got on to Into Darkness was the death of Spock, because like I think that's one yeah, of the clever things about the movie. That's yeah. really cheapened in in Star Trek Into Darkness, where it's kind of just used as a um... well, Kirk dies and comes back. Like it, it'd be yeah. one thing if he died and stayed dead until at least the next film, but he dies and immediately comes back. Yeah, which is is a problem, um, I think, structurally with that movie, because I, I do think like there's an interesting argument for Kirk dies and it's an inversion of the Wrath of Khan where it's like, OK, this time Kirk gets to make a sacrifice. Yeah. But it's the fact he dies and immediately is resurrected. So there it's, are no it's, consequences. Yeah, it's him learning nothing. Yeah. Um, versus kind of like, you know, he'll always be able to like get out of, you know, even death. By magic, um, where, magic can blood. Whereas this this movie is about kind of um, the inescapability of yeah. of death and how it's um, it's coming for all of us, and that, that, but 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 it's also about kind of making peace with that because it's it's, and I think it also kind of maybe speaks to the idea of this as an enduring intellectual property. The idea of ge ge Genesis is the life from death. Um, yeah. 
and that they're 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 not dead if we remember them. Well, that they can also be reinvented. That you can yeah. take something that is dead and can remake it and breathe life into it. And again, like it's notable that those sequences are very similar to the opening credits of the Next Generation. Like that sequence where the camera pans over the planet before it gets hit by Genesis is from the open. They use that again in the opening credits of the Next Generation. At the closing shot where it goes from the Genesis planet into the void is again something that feels like it's used again for the Next Generation opening credits. But like it, it does feel like it's we are taking Star Trek and we're kind of reinventing it and rebirthing it. And I think like there's something very clever in that because again when we talked about the motion picture the motion picture brings up vaguely the idea of Kirk being old and it brings up vaguely the idea of Kirk having an ego and Kirk needing to command the Enterprise and Kirk having no life beyond the Enterprise. But it doesn't really explore them or do anything with it. It's not really interested in that aspect of Kirk's character. I don't think it's vague, to be fair. No, it, it is quite... McCoy literally says it. Decker literally says it. That's fair. Yeah. But I don't think it pays off in the way that it does here. I think this is a much more Not mature quite. Handling it, yeah, it. yeah, it's more sort of like triumphant. And it, it's 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 kind of like, oh, I can still, you know... The, the, it's, it, it's, it's kind of like biting its tongue at uh, the slightly younger Decker. Yeah. And, well, De- Decker, Decker is the one who goes. Decker and Elia, yeah. who are the new characters, are the ones who die at the end of the motion picture or ascend at the end of the motion picture. Whereas here, it's like Spock dies and, you know, obviously Khan dies as well. But it's like David Marcus kind of survives, you know? Somebody didn't sign up Kirsty Alley for a second movie. <laughs> <laughs> like they, that was a fatal mistake. They got James, they got Horner. But they got Robin Curtis instead. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like that that's... Yeah, that is, that is a thing as well, where you have Savak and you have Savak's introduced as a character. And by the way, that sequence where uh, Spock and Savak speak Vulcan, uh, that was overdubbed in post. That's ADR. It was originally in English, I believe. And then they discovered that it worked better if they just changed it to Vulcan. That is, I believe, Mark Ockren's first uh, involvement with the Star Trek franchise, the guy who would go on to invent Klingon. Sure. And what he did was he looked at their lip movements. And he basically reverse engineered what Vulcan could, what alien sounding language from their lip movements in order to like overdub that scene, which is kind of interesting. Also, apparently, uh, most of Kirstie Alley's uh, dialogue was overdubbed as well. Uh, again, she's very young here, very inexperienced. According to Mayer, there was a bit of tension with herself and Shatner uh, and Nimoy uh, in terms of levels of experience. So apparently a lot of her stuff was kind of dubbed in post by her a lot of stuff was done ADR also apparently a lot of DeForest Kelly's lines as well although he was uh, very much a gent about it um, it's great whenever you read Star Trek stories everyone's out of their way to go yeah DeForest Kelly what a nice guy it's... no ego whatsoever was... unlike <laughs> unlike dot 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 um, it was uh, the, um, no sorry I was about to make a comment but I realized it's, it's Walter Koenig is Chekhov isn't it it's DeForest yeah. Kelly's bones yeah yeah no, um, I, well, I, mean, I was reminded that, that, that um, Petrina thought that um, Walter Koenig's uh, Chekhov voice sounds a bit like my impression of Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> that's not not that's not inaccurate. <laughs> you have done the Bjork voice recently. I have, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> I like that you have that in the back pocket ready to come out. 
But yeah, okay, let's talk a little bit about the death of Spock here. Because obviously, you know, we talked a bit on the motion picture. Nimoy has a tumultuous, tenuous relationship with the character of Spock by this point. He doesn't want to be defined solely by Star Trek. He does, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers the same year that the motion picture comes out. He does, like, Mission Impossible, you know, after Star Trek to kind of, like, break out of the role. So he's not thought of as Spock. His first autobiography is literally called I Am Not Spock. Although eventually he does release a follow-up called I am Spock. Um, so very much conflicted messages from Nimoy one? there. I'm also Kirk. Uh, I'm also Scotty. I'm I think it's the Simpsons Scotty. joke. That's that's the Simpsons <laughs> joke on that. Um, but like they do have. Um, but yeah, so basically, you know, he's not he's not eager to come back for this. So I believe it's Bennett kind of pitches him on the idea of, well, what if we give you a really great death scene? And he's like, fantastic. That That's it. Give me something to play. And maybe let me be done with the franchise if I'm going to be done with the franchise. Now, there are lots of people who point fingers and say it was XYZ who said it, whether it was Bennett who first said death, whether it was Nimoy who said, I don't want to come back. But the resolution of that was, we're going to put a death sequence in here. Gene Roddenberry gets wind of this. Gene Roddenberry does not care for this. Gene Roddenberry is not going to let Nimoy leave the franchise over his dead body. Again, just to put this in context, it's worth noting that like, Roddenberry would very famously pay pa- play power games with Shatner and Nimoy on the sets of the original Star Trek, where he would pit them against each other, pretty much for his own amusement. Uh, but he would also, like, make them record commercials. So that sequence in, I think, Is There in Truth No Beauty, where Spock talks about the beauty of the IDEC, the infinite diversity in infinite combinations. That was done so that, like, Roddenberry could sell the pendant via like his mail order kind of Lincoln Enterprises. So the idea was he was getting Nimoy to serve as a spokesperson for his own little private mail order company, which is again, classic Roddenberry. So yeah, Roddenberry's like, there's no way Nimoy's kind of squirming out of this. He's not gonna, he's not, they're not gonna let him do this. So he very angrily writes letters about how much he dislikes the script. He doesn't like that it's militaristic. He doesn't like that there's conflict in it. He certainly doesn't like that Spock dies in it. At one point, at one point, according to Bennett, they have a big blown out argument about the sequence where, you know, that like the, the eel, the eel crawls out of like, is a Chekhov's ear? Yes. And then like, obviously Kirk vaporizes it. Apparently, according to Bennett, there was a blowout argument with Roddenberry about that, where Roddenberry's like, no, he should want to like put it in a jar and study it. He shouldn't reflexively shoot this thing that has just crawled out of his friend's ear and almost killed him. Um, but yeah, so they, they have this kind of argument that's going back and forth about this stuff. Can I say it becomes it, it's interesting the 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 militarism thing because because, yes. because that, that 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 was one of the things that Nicholas Meyer took to it yeah because he didn't really understand Star Trek and it's why kind of it ends up looking quite differently is because as as you said earlier it's the Captain Horatio Hornblower it's understanding kind of uh, ships yeah. You know, and and um, there's a lot more whistles and bagpipes. There's the ceremony at the exactly. end. It is very yeah. It's and but it's also the uniforms. Yes, which are more naval. Yeah. Um. And again, like it, it's worth noting there. Like the irony of that is that I think Roddenberry originally described it as a ratio hornblower in space, but he kind of drifted away from that. Like Roddenberry, if you go back, Roddenberry, I think we mentioned was an Air Force man. If you look at Roddenberry's scripts for the original Star Trek, Roddenberry was a writer who was very fixated on, like, ceremony. Like, he very famous... His art, his episodes are often interrupted by unnecessarily long court-martial scenes. <laughs> like, so, for example, like, the final episode, Turnabout Intruder, where, like, Kirk does... It's a body swap episode where Kirk's body is hijacked by Janice Lester. And it's basically about how women are, like, too emotionally vulnerable to ever... like Too emotionally volatile to ever, like, have command of ships... 
Um, yeah, it's a very 1969 Gene Roddenberry script. But in the middle of that, there's an extended like court martial sequence for no reason whatsoever, aside from the fact that Roddenberry really likes procedures. There's like the savage. There's a lot of that in the Next Generation as well, in early Next yeah. Generation, like the whole idea of a trial of yeah. um, of humanity. Yeah. Of of the enterprise and stuff like that. Yeah. Like but also even like say like one of my great one of my favorite examples. Sorry, I love the... of 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 um uh, uh data. And, yes, yeah. in, in The Measure of Man. Although by that stage Roddenberry kind of turned around 180 degrees. He insisted that like he tried to stop Measure of Man from being made, uh, because according to him, data should volunteer for vivisection. <laughs> like he was like, There's no episode here. It's like, they come, they ask Data, can they vivisect him? Data should be like, yes, I would love to advance science. There's no episode here. And Melinda Snodgrass is like, uh, okay. Uh, and then apparently... She puts himself into a jar. <laughs> Scoops himself up. Um, and then studies himself very carefully. But like, like one of my great, my favorite examples of this is the um, the Savage Curtain, which is the famous like Space Lincoln episode. I do, where, like, I, 20... I do agree with him on smoking. I don't. I. I. I think the entire ship is a no smoking ship, and that they maybe have, um, they 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 have those aliens who have like, yeah, there are those aliens who have like a, a the benzites have like the breathing a, a apparatus thing on, yeah. on, on on their face. They is it can, benzites. I think it's benzites. Yeah, they yeah, can they, obviously smoke. <laughs> um. Because that's what they're all the the the, and then I guess like <laughs> for for diplomatic reasons, maybe in ten forward, um, yeah. Sarek is allowed just light up whenever he comes on board. Yeah, right? that's that's the thing, you know. But I mean, again, the the kind of Lincoln because he's Gandalf. <laughs> he basically is Gandalf. He wears robes. He when he shows up on the next generation, he's wearing like Greek toga. He's wearing a toga. One of the things I actually do love about like the Beck and the, the Savage Curtain is that they spend 20 minutes on the fact that the Enterprise has like procedures in place for greeting the President of the United States from like the 19th century. It's like Lincoln beams on board and Kirk is like, I want you all to observe protocol. Scotty, are you in your dress uniform and kilt? I captain, I am. And it's like, <laughs> OK, this is this is certainly worth spending 20 minutes of an episode on. But yeah, but like it, it's kind of interesting that you have this pushback against it. But one of the big things that happens is that once Roddenberry discovers that he's not going to be taken seriously, that the production team are not going to bow to his every whim, that they're not going to follow his every order. He decides to turn the one weapon that he has against the movie, which is he starts manipulating the fans. He leaks his script to the fan press and they know that it's his script because there's a special kind of code hidden in each of them. I think it was a typo on a given page that was designed for everybody had a different typo so they could trace back leaks and determine exactly who it was. And they also, like, he would have, like, Susan Sackett, um, who was, like, one of his kind of, like, right-hand kind of women. She'd go to, like, conventions in 1980, 1981 and start stirring up fans about the movie. You know, if you don't care for that idea, it's up to you to try to convince them. You know what to do, she would tell fans, like in a crowded auditorium, and kind of telling them to rise up against Paramount. You had things like people took out at full-page advertisements in like the Daily Variety and the Hollywood Reporter, um, with headlines like, and Andrew, I'm sure you'll get a kick out of this, why is Paramount deliberately jeopardizing $28 million in revenue, fans demand, um, asking... <laughs> Why would fans 
care. So stupid. Yeah. Oh, well, it gets worse. Obviously, it gets worse. But you have things like Robert Salen, who is the producer, the line producer on this, receives death threats from fans. Like he received a phone call in his home telling him, and I quote, if you kill Spock, we'll kill you. He had to employ security to protect his family. Like, it wasn't a single threat, but a sustained campaign. Like, his wife has talked about, like, being afraid to answer the phone for years because there'd be all these creepy phone calls about threatening to, like, kill him and his family if they if he dared to kill off Spock. Uh, and he says, basically, yeah, this continued up until the film was actually released, which is insane. And again, like, that's the thing. It's like, it's weird. We think of, like, that sort of weaponization of fandom as a modern thing. But it's kind of interesting to go back and say, no, actually, this was this was around in 1982. You had people who realized they could stir up fans to get kind of militant about this stuff and that they would actually do like terrible, terrible things even before the Internet made it easy to do terrible, terrible things. Well, arguably, Star Trek is the kind of um, the proto fandom in some ways. And Star Trek Phantom. Yeah, yeah, is the kind of what what happened to to mass culture yeah. i'm not a monster i'm just ahead of the curve they're the people who you know um were the um kind of network engineers and kind of um the people the the the, the people kind of getting on board with the internet early yeah and organizing kind of as you said all the message groups in the chat rooms like that that old joke about the internet is for you know two groups on the internet porn and star trek like that's it <laughs> that's what the internet is for like which is one of those to take us back to the 1990s but yeah no you're right and i mean again we should note that like obviously star trek fandom has done good and great things like the letter writing campaign that was re- reportedly responsible for getting the show its third season but it is kind of interesting that even this early you can already see this possessiveness of, of kind of like of, of fandom where it's like we own this this thing belongs to us and it will always belong to us and you outsiders you can't come in and you can't change it you can't make it something different and like the reflexive like reaction against that where it's like if you do this one thing which we haven't seen we haven't seen the movie we don't know the context of it we don't know whether or not it was like Leonard Nimoy's choice that this was happening we don't know why just we've heard through the grapevine that this thing is going to happen that we don't like and we are going to take out like press advertisements we're going to like ring up producers in their homes and we're just going to get really militant and really aggressive about it and it's again it's it's just odd to think of this as something that's happening in 1982 well, yeah, it's it's like the it's like a lot of things. It's it's like people were very kind of before Casino Royale. The people. Oh, just, the blonde Bond thing. Yeah, yeah, that Bond isn't blonde or whatever it was, and now Casino Royale is this like a beloved uh, movie among uh, James Bond kind of aficionados. Um, yeah, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's certainly one of my favorite Bond films. Um, and I think like that's that's the thing that's kind of really interesting about this is that like this is so different from any Star Trek that came before, and yet it all of Star Trek afterwards kind of looks like it. And you the the response or what fans seem to learn from this isn't okay. We can try new things with Star Trek, or Star Trek doesn't have to be one shape. The thing that fans learn from it is, no, everything should look like the Wrath of Khan now. Where, like, again, you mentioned Manny Koto, he comes on. When he takes over, like, Enterprise, they do a three-episode homage to the Wrath of Khan, which is, like, what is it? It's, like, Borderland, Cold Station 12, and The Augments, which is basically just a 
Enterprise remakes The Wrath of Khan. You have things like Bashir on Deep Space Nine. He's revealed to be an augment like Khan. He's revealed to be genetically engineered and like then, Khan was. For yeah, example. and it's in Section 31. Like, and in Section 31 as well. Like, yeah, but like, like Khan. <laughs> retroactively from yeah. into darkness well again yeah you have that kind of like cyclic influence there yeah you you it's odd though because in into darkness um because it's um because it's muppets babies um <laughs> uh he meets like uh Cara marcus um for 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 the first time, rather, rather than kind of it, 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 it being his an old flame, or whatever. It's an alternate universe. He spe- it is, uh, Spock speaks to an, an um, our universe, Spock. <laughs> Spock Prime. Yeah, it's our universe because it, it's what happens. Well, it's an alternate universe to this one. Star Trek is, I think, as we discussed in um the star trek the motion picture it's 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 an alternate universe where the communists win <laughs> the cold war and, and san um, francisco is the uh it's the capital the hippie of the capital world. of the world it's like the, yeah. Y- yeah it's the un i mean again like it's it's arguable like we talked about like the motion picture being like this movie about like 60s icons out of time it is notable that you could argue that this is very similar to like the kind of 80s backlash to 60s things where it's like well Kirk had his years of free love and now he's a dad. It's like now Kirk's got to expect daddy responsibilities. There is a little bit of kind of that to it. And again, like you mentioned the militarism. Yeah, they didn't give him AIDS. <laughs> that's, so that's fair. Space AIDS. Oh. But like you, you do, well, again, 1982 would kind of be on the cusp of that. It would maybe be a little bit early for that uh, bit of social commentary. Although the thing I think kind of arrives around this time as well. But it is like, I, I think you could argue, make that connection that in terms of like it being a more militaristic movie, that that thing is kind of a reckoning with 60s values where like Star Trek isn't again. And this is the thing where Star Trek has this big utopian ideal. When we talked about it in the motion picture, we kind of like discussed how it's something that only really comes into the show in its third and final season. The first two seasons under, say, Gene L. Coon are much more ambiguous or ambivalent about the Federation. And I think. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan kind of pushes back on the motion picture because it's it's a movie that does seem rather skeptical of all this. It is, as you said, a much more militaristic movie, but I think it's also about how Starfleet yeah, is... Yeah, and the scientists are, are quite skeptical yeah. of Starfleet. Yeah, where it's like, you know, the scientists have always been pawns of the military. Yeah. Like, when it is about militarism... It's not, I don't think it's blanketly militaristic. It's not like it turns into unironic starship troopers. But I think it's more like accepting that Starfleet and the Federation have always been, I say always, in 1982, have been for the past 15 years, a reflection of American self-image projected into the future. You know, Kennedy's new frontier in outer space. And the idea that, you know, yes, that includes all the bright utopianism, idealism, the idea of kind of liberal democracy triumphing and all this sort of stuff. But it does also have like a dark underbelly to it. And I think it's it's very telling that, you know, the Genesis device here is basically the atomic bomb, which is like the cornerstone of the, you know, post Second World War world order, the the neoliberal kind of American, you know, kind of global, the American century, as it's known. Or as it was known. I don't think it even got to a century. I think people have been declaring it dead. But the idea of like American global dominance and global power being something that is, you know, 
down to the development of the atomic bomb as this kind of like moment that completely upends the understanding of what is possible uh, and the level of destruction that can be wrought. And like here you have the idea, as, as you said, the scientists who are talking about how anxious they are to be working with the military and how the military, the scientists are always pawns of the military. And the idea that even within there's this tension on both sides where obviously David isn't happy to be working with Starfleet, but the Reliant crew also don't seem particularly happy to be doing this scouting on behalf of the scientists. Terrell seems like really frustrated that he has to go down and actually investigate the scientific reading rather than just like signing a form and letting them like nuke the planet. But you have this kind of idea that runs through Star Trek 2, which is the idea that, yeah, the Federation and Starfleet maybe aren't as perfect or as ideal as maybe, say, the motion picture kind of wanted it to be with its oath of celibacy and its, um, you know, <laughs> and its really horniness. And it's like... There is some of that as well. It's like that she has to point that her hair is regulation. It's yeah. a weird moment. <laughs> it, and then she reaches across and Kirk's like, is this what I think is what I think is happening? She's stopping the turbo lift. Um, Here it comes. <laughs> loving it. <laughs> Still got it, Kirk says to himself. Um, still got it. The, 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 that here comes um, a line. Um, Nicholas Meyer is great when he, he's he's talking about working with William Shatner. He says that his best takes uh, were like uh, late yeah. late takes. Yeah. That yeah. that 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 he had to kind of wait until he got kind of tired and bored. Yeah, and 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 then it was it was kind of like natural and real, where the the, the like his deliver his delivery of 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 here it comes, is um, was this big kind of you know moment in the movie. But the way he wanted to deliver it, that Nicholas Meyer w- was like, you know, like Khan is quite a clever guy. If you say it like that, he's going to know <laughs> that something is up. <laughs> You know, the the audience knows, you know, um, that, yeah, so it's, 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 it's interesting. I think he gets, he, he gets the best out of, um, Shatner. Shatner. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is Shatner's best performance as Kirk. Um, I think he's astounding here. I think he's very good. And we talked about like the undiscovered country. He's also astounding there. Mm. Meyer obviously knows how to use him really, really well. But I, I think, like, Shatner is legitimately great. I mean, like, this is the thing where it's hard to divorce Shatner from, like, all of the stories about Shatner, where, like, he would, like, read scripts and count his lines, and he'd, like, if Nimoy had more lines than him, he would throw a fit, or he'd, like, write back and he'd be like, this seems like something the captain would say. And it's like, no, no, that that's a Spock line. It's like, no, it seems like something the captain would say. Um, But, like, the idea that, yeah, that Shatner kind of could be a bit of a diva and the fact that he kind of tell stories that, that kind of aggrandize himself. And ha- if you listen, if you have those DVDs, uh, I recommend listening to Shatner's commentary on Star Trek V. Um, it is a fascinating study of William Shatner, actor, director, and raconteur, and his view of um, his work and his place in the grander cultural tapestry. It's amazing. It's so full of these wonderful passive-aggressive resentments where it's like, people are like, why does my character have an arc? I'm like, well, you're here to serve the story, and the story is my story. Um, not everybody can have an arc, George. Um, but yeah, so you have this kind of like interesting sense where it's like, no, I want them all to know they're here to serve me. 
This, they don't seem to get that. That's That was my biggest challenge as director, was that I was dealing with actors who didn't understand that they were there to serve the story that I had written about what? me as a character. Is it, uh, he wanted to be tech war. <laughs> well, like, again, not, we're not talking about the final frontier. We'll talk about the final... We may talk about the final frontier at some point in the future, but it is very telling that when William Shatner writes a Star Trek movie, writes and directs a Star Trek movie, it is a Star Trek movie about how the entire crew are stabbing Kirk in the back. Like, nobody on the crew can be trusted. They will all betray Kirk at the first opportunity. He is the only person on this crew you can count on. But yeah, so, like, I think that he's really good here. And I think that the movie uses him really well. And, like, I quite like Shatner's uh, larger-than-lifestyle. I know that it's not naturalistic. I know that it's not necessarily very grounded. It's good. Um, I kind of agree with I that. I think it's really good. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's it's... I think even on the show, like it worked really well because it was like it's a heightened reality with the plywood sets. The you know the special effects which are obviously limited by the standards of the time. But I think even here, it's very arch. And as you said, that thing that he does, which is very Fincher esque, where where it's like you just break the actor down to the point where they're not acting anymore. Where there's like this sense of frustration and exhaustion, which is what you want to capture on film. But yeah, I think I think he's he's absolutely brilliant here. I, I think like the movie works in large part because Shatner is so so good at this stuff. Um, in terms of other stuff, oh, Petrina's notes. Oh I'm yes, sorry. no, no. Uh, I I don't remember if I think it was while watching Star Trek Into Darkness, but I I think equally it could have been while watching this. She pointed out like the. Um, the vulnerability of warp missiles. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> the design of them just being out there. It's like, oh, that's not, uh, <laughs> that's not great. I, I do love that, that architect, the architect's eyes. <laughs> yeah. like that, that's a structural disaster waiting to happen. Exactly, because they always get hit, like, and then, you know, <laughs> you know the whole thing like, and blows up. Blows up. Yeah. But also, if they if they get hit, you can't go anywhere. Like, yeah. if you lose one of them, you, you're kind of stuck floating in the dead of space. Yeah, because um, there's one point where there's like one of them is destroyed and it's just going in circles, literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of kind of just other stuff about kind of the Wrath of Khan, is there anything jumping out at you? Anything you want to discuss that we haven't really talked well, about? Well, I, I, I said kind of Nicholas Meyer's point on, on William Shatner was kind of contrasted to um, Ricardo Montalban, who like every, um, you know, who's like first... Um, like take was always saying like perfect. He was saying how like it's a good thing that they don't really have any scenes together <laughs> <laughs> because it would have been very awkward. Yeah, which them. take to what? use? And he 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 said about Montalban, and I think it's something that's true, is that there are these actors who are known for doing kind of um, uh, kind of crappy uh, movies and film shows. But it's a it's a kind of a requirement of like if you're a working actor you need to work, and thus people had this idea of Ricardo Montalban as that guy from what was it like was it Forbidden Island or Fancy Fancy Island Fancy Island yeah Forbidden Island was was wasn't that the um, I feel like that's one of those like precursors to um, uh, Love Island or something like that is this. 
Is it where is, is Temptation it, Island is what you're thinking of? Yeah, is it like a thing on Sky One or something? Yeah, yeah. There, there was a reality TV show called Temptation Island. I know because when I studied psychology at Nerd Camp, I was like, I want to run Temptation Island in DCU, and they were like, Darren, that's unethical. I was like, fine, fine. <laughs> but the, he was like this great um, actor, this great talent, and the I think Nicholas Meyer said that like it's every it's it. It's every kind of like director or filmmaker's kind of hope that you will get, you know, somebody like that. Um, And as well that 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 he felt that this is a guy who should be, um, you know, uh, uh, playing King Lear or. Yeah. And and, and that he wasn't. And that Ricardo Montalban was quite down on himself. He was like, oh, but I have this silly accent. It's like, no, but he was like perfectly enunciated. Um, everything that you and you say. have presence, yeah, and it, it's it, it, it like you are, you know, that you're a fantastic actor. Oh yeah, well, Montalban is like one of those guys who, like, if you're watching film or television in that like twenty or thirty year span from like the fifties through to the eighties, you see him everywhere, and you're like, why wasn't this guy bigger? Because he's in like that Bob Fosse movie, Sweet Charity, like which is I think from like nineteen sixty nine. And he's like the fourth or fifth lead in that. And you're like, that is a tremendous performance. Why isn't like, why was, and again, the answer is obvious. It's because of racism. But why wasn't the studio like tripping over itself to, to like give him more roles, to feature him more prominently? Um, but because he's a trend, he's a tremendous screen presence. And actually, like on your um, mayor story there, there is one story that I have from like the 50 year mission where Mayer says, look, he was he was a dream to work with. There was just one one in his first day on set. He kind of he came in and he had to deliver that speech. You know, that's that whole, you know, buried alive speech. Um, and he went he went too far. He went too, too far over the top. And everybody's kind of looking. Oh, yes. yeah. Looking at each other. And it's like, OK, do we have a problem here? And so, like, Mayer basically says, OK, I'm going to ask everybody to break, going to be very diplomatic. Everybody go back to their trailers. And he goes, he, he visits him and he's like, um, he phrases it very delicately because this is his first real interaction with Montalban. And as I said, he's this is Mayer's only second film. And he's like, look, you know what Laurence Olivier said about acting? He said, look, it's important that you should you should never show the audience your top because once you show the audience your top, they know that you've got nowhere else to go. And Montalban kind of looks at him and he says, ah. I see you're going to direct me. That's good. I need directing. I don't know what I'm doing up there. And apparently that was the moment where like Mayor was like, yeah, this is just going to be perfect. This is a very different dynamic than what I have with Chat. Yeah. Cause he, he, in, instead of going like to the roof, yeah, he has this kind of like very slow and soft and kind of like, you just feel that there's like all of this menace coming, and it's like, oh, of course, I know you, Chekhov. You know, where where <laughs> yeah. it's 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 um, where it's very menacing and and very effective. And again, the fact that the two of them never share a scene together, mm. which is quite remarkable. And again, part of that I believe was down to scheduling as well. There was meant to be something in the script, but it was cut. Again, we mentioned something like Khan being given psychic powers at one stage, which was a bad call and was quite correctly removed from the script. But I think it works really well that the two of them don't have any scenes together because it feels like you get a contrast between the two men and it kind of plays into this sense of like isolation between them where it's like their battle between them. What's that line Mayer says, which is like Khan thinks about Kirk every day and Kirk hasn't thought about Khan for 20 years at this point. Hmm. Um, 
And like that, that kind of dynamic that you have between the two of them where, and again, the irony that the suggestion you have where like Khan's right hand man is like, look, we can go, you can leave, you don't have to do this. And the idea that, yeah, this means nothing to Kirk. This theoretically means nothing to Kirk. Kirk has never even pondered what happened to Seti Alpha 5. But like to Khan, this is all his existence is, which is kind of, I think that's a really good tension between the two of them. I think it gives the movie kind of a nice edge to play. And I think the fact that they don't meet kind of like mythologizes it almost, you know, um, it kind of makes it seem bigger and allows for that dissonance where it means two different things to the two characters who are on either end of the radio, as it were. Um, it also, I think, makes it feel like a submarine movie, which is quite nice. Um, yeah. Like, it's a, it's a really lean... From, from Hal's heart, I stab at the... Yeah. Um, and again, the detonation, again, like the atomic bomb, the detonation of Genesis, the death and rebirth. Um, the idea that, yeah, this massive destructive force that, again, could be used. Like, McCoy points out that this is not... You, you deploy that on something that already has life on it, and it just wipes it out and completely replaces it. It's a weapon of, like... It is the ultimate, like, colonial imperialist weapon. It just kind of pastes over uh, anything that's there and replaces it with the Federation, with Starfleet, with like something that is more suitable to their living conditions. Which again, it's, it's something really interesting because again, we talked about it when we talked about like the you know the motion picture and the the kind of the idea of the city on the edge of forever and like the Second World War being like the cornerstone of Star Trek. Like, the Second World War is the origin point of Star Trek, both literally and metaphorically. Obviously, so many of the writing staff kind of came up through the Second World War, served in the armed forces during the Second World War. And then you have in the city on the edge of forever, it's like, well, if if America doesn't enter World War II, then the Federation doesn't exist. Um, and it's kind of interesting that you, you now in Star Trek II get the idea that, yeah, well, if that's the case, then the Federation must logically have some equivalent to nuclear weapons. It must have some equivalent kind of device or some equivalent power um, to those. And that should be well, something yeah, that should it, be... But um, it's, it, I always understood that it was beyond uh, nuclear fission and that it had gone into um, antimatter. Oh, yeah. No, I don't mean literally. I just mean metaphorically. Sorry. I, yeah. Because, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, the Federation is gone. It's, it's matter and antimatter is how the Federation kind of propels itself. But, like, the Genesis device is, feels like it's a clear metaphor for the nuclear bomb. Like, right down to the fact that you have this whole discussion with the scientists talking about their work being used by the military mm. and what that means. Which is kind of very similar to what you associate with the Manhattan Project and things like that, where you have this idea of, you know. And then, of course, you have the juxtaposition of I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, and, you know, can I cook or can't I? Where it's, you have, like, the inverse or the inversion of it almost. Where it's like, yes. This thing destroys and burns absolutely everything. And the way in which it's presented, it is a fire that consumes that planet. But then out the other side, you have this idea that, well, that's yeah. that becomes this kind of you, ordering principle. You have Spock away there in Ferngully. Yeah. Uh, resurrected, which was that scene was shot against Nick Meyer's kind of like recommendation advice over his dead body is how we described it or over Spock's dead body. But that was basically a scene that was added when Nimoy... When Nimoy began rehearsing uh, for the film and when he began shooting the film, he had such good fun. He said, OK, you know what? Maybe I was premature with my death, with the whole death sequence. Uh, maybe I was premature, not wanting to come back. What if I want to come back for the next one? And they were like, uh, well, you're kind of we've written your death sequence already there, Leonard. And they're like, OK, what if instead of 
I think the original plan was to like scatter his ashes in space uh, was the initial plan. And then they're like, that will make it very difficult to bring him back for the next one. They're like, okay, let's send him down to Genesis. And apparently that scene at the very end with the torpedo and with the kind of open hatch on the torpedo and the lack of the body, uh, which again, very Christ-like, um, but the idea that the tomb is empty. But you have this idea that that sequence was shot without Mayer's involvement. And Mayer's like, yeah, I did not want that scene in there that was put in like against my wishes. But that was put in by Paramount apparently when they were rattled by all the like the fans and the death threats and the idea that Nimoy might want to come back for the next one. Um, but yeah, so it's it's kind of it is it is. Yeah, that's that's kind of interesting that the movie kind of does backpedal there. Because I mean, like that that's the thing about it. It is a movie that is about getting older, but it does also end with the tease of, yeah, but Spock's not really dead. And it does have the moment where Kirk at the very end, like when McCoy asks him, how do you feel? He says, I feel young, um, where he's been kind of rejuvenated by this. He's It's been like this thing has been a Genesis experience for him. He's come out the other end and having lost all all this stuff and having experienced all of this suffering and having confronted like the fact that he now has a son and you know the fact that his best friend is dead he still has some of that youth behind him some of that youth and vitality there which is an interesting kind of end to the movie i think mm. um and again obviously the, the counterpoint to that is that then you get star trek 3 which is a movie that is exactly the opposite of star trek 2 where it's like, these old folks, yeah? Well, they're having fun adventures again. Look at them, having fun adventures. They're going to be reckless. They're going to be excited. They can do all the cool stuff. Watch them teach those kids how cool stuff is done. Um, they don't need to get old at all or face consequences or deal with the consequences or repercussions of their actions. It's kind of interesting how, you know... It's not accurate, considering... Like, Star Trek Three ends, and we're in the spoiler zone, but, like, Kirk loses his son... Yeah. Who only ever appeared in the Wrath of Khan. Um, and he loses the Enterprise, but he gets a brand new Enterprise at the end of the next movie. And he gets Spock back. And like the whole thing is like, Kirk, Kirk, you're too old for this. Leave this to the professionals. The Federation and Starfleet is dealing with this. He loses what? his son. Who he only appeared in one previous movie. It's a it's a good trade for Spock. Like I, I, I like I like the search for Spock a great deal. I think it's very good. I like David it. was proud to be his son. <laughs> Fair enough. That that didn't make me cry the oh. way um of I, all the souls I've encountered in my life. It was the most human. The way he choked up. You, no, you gotta pause. You gotta pause you gotta go. The, his was the most human. Um like that's that's the moment it's where he's like Shatner kind of just anyway, sorry, he's just so perfect. Does it get you, Darren? It does a little bit. It's like he's going home. He's a dude. He did his job, and now he's going home. It's like that's that's right in the Darren sweet spot. Can I say as well um, the uh, subtlety of the filmmaking and kind of choices of shots? I appreciate it, and I I I, I think it's very different to Star Trek Into Darkness, where there's there, the filmmaking is very intrusive. I think. Um, you mean in terms of being very forceful in terms of camera yeah, movements? Yeah, uh, like obviously people talk about lens flare, but also there's a lot of kind of like Dutch angles and yeah, a lot of kind of camera movements. Yeah, yeah. The where whereas here, I think Nicholas Myers' um, attitude is that if you're looking at a shot, thinking, "Oh wow, what a great shot!" Like how good a shot is it really? 
Like if if you're if well, it's you probably not it. serving the story. I imagine yeah. instead of the argument there. Like it's if if it's taking you out. If you're if you're admiring the filmmaking craft, it's taking you out of the story. Yeah, which is which is kind of kind of how he feels about things, and I think it works very well. Yeah, you, you, I mean, it's I, all very well done, but you do, you're it's not showy. Yeah, I mean, again, there's some discussion about the fact that this was only again Mayer's second movie, and the kind of conflict that he had with with Robert Salen, the line producer who was on the set every day, where he said that, like, apparently Salen tried to get Mayer fired from the movie three days into the shoot because they were already a week behind, which I'm not even sure how the maths works on that, but apparently that's that's where they were three days in. They were a week behind. Where he's saying things like Mayer had difficulty, like, lining up, say, that shot of Kirk walking into the training bay. You know, the really great shot where the door opens and he's kind of lit from behind. Uh, which is arguably one of the most showy, iconic shots in the film. Apparently, Mayer just couldn't get that shot to work, for example. They had to spend, like, a long time on that and then kind of end up going behind schedule. Um, but apparently, like, I absolutely love that, like, when, like, when Salon, and Salon, to his credit, has said, I was entirely wrong. I, I shouldn't have done it. In hindsight, I was just jittery because of the amount of money on the line, because of the amount of pressure, and because of the tight schedule under which we were operating. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. But when I did go to Michael Eisner, and when I did say, you know, we need to get rid of Nicholas Meyer, Mayer, um, like Eisner's response was, we can't, we can't fire a director in the middle of production. No director would ever want to work with us again, which is another example of how film production is radically different in 1982 as compared to like 2022, where it's like, yeah, no, fire the director immediately. Bring in like Joss Whedon, bring in some TV scriptwriter or whatever. We'll get them to finish the rest. It'll be fine. Um, I kind of find that interesting. But yeah, I think I think Mayer's filmmaking is very effective. And I think that it works really well because it feels claustrophobic. It's not... When we talked about, like, the motion picture, we talked about, like, Robert Wise struggling to shoot, like, the sets cinematically because they'd all been built for television. So they weren't built for widescreen. They were built for, again, with the idea that they would be on a television 4.3 aspect ratio. Uh, and I think that Mayer... It's very matter of fact in his compositions. Um, I think there are some lovely shots here. I think the movie looks great. But he also doesn't, as you said, get in his own way. And I think that matter of factness works remarkably well. Because again, this is this is a movie about getting old. So it makes sense that it doesn't feel like dynamic and edgy. It doesn't feel like it's kind of pushing or propulsive. It doesn't feel... Well, that's well, not fair. It is, it is it propulsive. Is propulsive. But it, yeah. it is propulsive. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like it's pushing you, if that makes sense. It doesn't feel like it's drawing attention. It doesn't feel like it's a constant shot of nicotine or, well, sorry, nicotine because of no smoking sign, but shot of, say, caffeine or jolt of caffeine or electricity. It, it's kind of, it is very it's No, it's just, it's just that it's not getting high in its own supply, I think. Yeah, that's fair. That's a better metaphor than the nicotine metaphor. Um, but yeah, I think it, and I think it is. And I think, and again... The legacy of the movie in terms of every, pretty much every Star Trek movie after this one, with the exception of, say, Star Trek 4, has to have a big villain because Khan codifies being a villain. And the fact that, like, this is the first time that, we, as you mentioned, this is a nautical naval movie. This is the first time Star Trek really focuses on space combat. The, the battle in the nebula is kind of a defining moment for the franchise because it's the moment where the franchise figures out it can do this. Obviously, when they were doing this on television, they couldn't do space battles. There is, I think, a four-shot space battle in Ilan of Troyes uh, on the third season of Star Trek. It looks terrible, and it took 20 weeks 
to do that on a television budget. So like it was the first episode they shot, but it was like the fifth one or sorry, the ninth one they released because it took that long to render. Whereas here, this is the first time that you really have a proper space battle um, in Star Trek where you have like the Reliant and the Enterprise hunting each other through the nebula. Um, which is something that like even say the original Star Trek, Star Trek the motion picture with V'ger and the Klingons didn't have. It didn't have a comparable sequence. The Klingons fired. And by the way, they recycle that shot at the start of this one for the Kobayashi Maru. Um, but like it, it, this is the point at which it's like, okay, every Star Trek movie has to kind of climax a little bit with a space battle. There has to be a space battle towards the end of it. And again, Star Trek four is the exception. But you look at things like even Generations has a space battle. The Generations space a... battle is terrific. <laughs> I, will, I will not hear any Generation slander on this podcast, no, says Andrew. No, and, and it, it's actually quite similar to um, uh, Undiscovered Undiscover Country. Country as well. With the cloaked ship and stuff, isn't yeah. it? Because they're firing through the shields. Um, yeah. All right, then. Um, I think that about then wraps it up. Unless anything else we're talking about. Anything we haven't discussed already with regards to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Anything jumping out at you from your notes? No, no, I'm, 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 um, jumping out there. No. All right then. Okay, oh, so I, I, recommendation. I did okay. think it was a great exposition briefing. Oh, the gen- the Genesis presentation. Yeah, in the sense of like, oh, um, I, uh, come, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a way of um, telling characters. Yes. Thing. Where you're, like it, where it you're also telling the audience. Yeah, like McCoy, like that's the one sequence in the movie where it really feels like McCoy, Spock and Kirk are all playing off each other. Because you have moments yeah. where obviously McCoy and Kirk talk to one another and moments where like Spock and Kirk play off each other. But that sequence is the one where it really feels like all three of them are bouncing together. And again, some really great one liners in there where it's like, you know, and what if they materialize in a bunch of rock? Well, that'll be your big chance to get away from it all. Like these really <laughs> great one-liners. Um, and again, like it's a sense that it's it's fun in a way that the motion picture wasn't. Mm. If that's not unfair to say. Um, like we talked on the motion picture about like Robert Wise trying to crack down on humor in the set. Where like Nimoy and, and Shatner were like, no, we, we can have funny lines. Um, but it's like, no, this is just feels, this feels like it's a more pleasant hang. Like even after... Even in the Kobayashi Maru sequence, where you have like McCoy lying on the ground going, uh, and what do you think of my performance? I'm not a drama critic, Bones. Uh, it's just like, okay, this is cool. I like watching these old people hang out together. I like just the vibes of them. Um, all right, then. Recommendations. So, Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners? Something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that's bringing you a bit of joy in these uncertain times? I feel like it's going to be a, probably a kind of a light recommendation station. Um, Are we calling it a recommendation station? Oh, sorry. That's from another podcast. Okay. I didn't hate Star Trek Into Darkness. I thought it was an interesting kind of a a timely kind of uh, piece of uh, kind of investigating kind of the idea of of, um, uh, terrorism and the ultimate kind of rejection of muscular aggressive kind of foreign policy where it's one of the rare rare like rare pieces of like obama era pop culture that is explicitly about things like drone warfare where it's not like oh this is the legacy of the bush era this is very much like no this is the obama era this is like 2009 you know hope is here kind of thing it's like oh by the way we're also doing drones uh, which is interesting it's um there are people out there who will wish to do us harm 
but um you know that we can't become them um uh and it's um it's got some decent production design i don't think um chris pine is 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 very good in general or specifically in this i think i i don't know about in general i'm 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 i think there's lots of people who are very fond of his his performance i think you're a fan of chris pine i do i think is he the best chris i think he may be the best chris yeah rock is excluded for some reason i'm 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 yeah i think i'm a i'm I'm a bit of a hemsworth fan um, I like Hemsworth too. Yeah. I think Hemsworth is probably second for me, then Evans, then Pratt. I, I don't know why I don't glom to Evans as much. People seem to love Evans. I, I like Evans. I, I can't explain it. Uh, but then again, like I, I, you asked me to explain the pine thing, and I probably can't either. Yeah. And the 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 the, the other thing was a a um we 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 were talking about um Star Trek fans, the 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 mob. And it reminded me of um, Terry Pratchett's uh, description of, of, of a mob where they did the, its intelligence is equal to the least intelligent um, member of the mob divided by the number of people in the mob. Um, <laughs> um, um, which Terry Pratchett book is that from? But uh, I'm not sure actually where where okay. where that's from. Um, but the book that I read lately was *The Light Fantastic*, which is the second uh, Discworld's novel after *The Color of Magic*. Um, where I kind of started with Pratchett reading, um, some of his like assorted later stuff. It was um, making money, and um, why am I forgetting all of them? The watch. Oh, damn it. My, my, my brain is just um, mush. Sorry. Anyway, The Light Fantastic was the, the most recent one I read. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, the, the, the Color of Magic is also um, a lot of fun. And they're, 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 um, they say that they, they, they do for the kind of fantasy genre what uh, Blazing Saddles did for, for, for Westerns. Oh. It's interesting because fantasy isn't really a genre that i um want. that you normally kind of glom yeah to yeah and it was only kind of in recent years that i started kind of um accepting it into as my uh, personal lord and savior <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to talking about like at the rings of power when we talk about the two yeah. towers later this year um andrew and his hot takes on the house of the dragon or hot d as it is known uh, to the fans, they have the the they have the same hairstyle. <laughs> um, all right. Um, and for myself, in terms of recommendations, I guess actually, like Lower Decks is streaming at the moment, which is the new Star Trek animated uh, TV show. Uh, there is one episode in particular that I might recommend for Andrew specifically. I don't know which number it is in the season, but it is called Crisis Point Two. And basically, it is a sequel to the episode called Crisis Point, where they, like, mock the Star Trek movies, or they do, like, a spoof of the Star Trek movies. But they do... Crisis Point 2 is basically Star Trek Generations, where you have this kind of interesting thing where it's like, we're making a blockbuster, but it's also a very poignant exploration of human morality, human mortality, and, like, how these two elements don't really fit together, but we're going to try and make that movie anyway. 
um, which I kind of found, I found really heartwarming as somebody who we've talked in the podcast before. Andrew loves Generations. I respect it, but have a very awkward relationship with it. Um, so I was watching Crisis Point 2 and I thought of Andrew a great deal because you have like one character who's trying to use this holodeck movie as a way of processing their trauma. And it's like, this is not what the program's meant for, but OK, we're going to try and do that anyway, uh, which I found, kind of, again, very oddly moving in spite of it all. It's a ser- it's a series that is up and down. I don't entirely love it, but I found myself warming to it a great deal, particularly as I, you know, maybe as we talked about, when we talked about the undiscovered country. I'm a grumpy old man. I'm not necessarily entirely in love with all of the new Star Trek stuff. Yeah, um, so as- you're. I th- I I, th- I think you're 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 you you would defend like more of us, I think, than I would. Uh, um, I don't think you're a person who's kind of like. Orville, that's my Star Trek, no, no. or which, which is uh, the direction that, uh, like, uh, I guess a few people have went in. Yeah, which always feels very passive aggressive. That where it's like, no, the Orville's your Orville, and that's okay. Like the the Orville is the Orville. It doesn't have to be Star Trek, and you don't need to make a bit some of sort it. of statement. It is very Star Trek. It's very nineties. It's a very specific version of Star Trek. Like, and you can tell that it's like Seth MacFarlane kind of came up watching that version of Star Trek, right. and he loves that version of Star Trek. And again, I don't know. I'm again. We've talked about this. We don't have time to talk about it now. No, but I'm like, I if I want ninety Star Trek, there are two hundred episodes. Sorry, there there are what four hundred episodes of it I can watch. Like if I want ninety Star Trek, and they're all on Netflix if I'm in the UK. They're all on Paramount Plus if they're on if I'm in the US. I can just stick one of those four hundred odd episodes on at random and get my fix of ninety Star Trek. I don't need more of that, and I don't need an imitation of that. I can just watch that. It's it's like you said, watching this and you going back to your childhood and remembering kind of like watching with your brother. It's like, yeah. Um, and there was another example you gave of watching Deep Space Nine where it's like, yeah, if I want to recapture the feeling of watching Deep Space Nine, I can watch Deep Space Nine. And it, it's great. And it, I'm, not, I'm not belittling or like making fun of that or deriding that. I'm yeah. like, I do that. I love, that's what Deep Space Nine is That all for. the new that's, stuff doesn't have to be for me. Yeah. That that sort of stuff. That uh, sorry, and uh, sorry. This turned into a, a weird rant, and I, I apologize for that. Um, in terms of of other stuff, just uh, the Amazon movie and the Vast of Night, uh, I would recommend as well. Uh, it is a science fiction kind of like a throwback to nineteen fifty science fiction. It is this kind of like low budget story about a bunch of people who, in a small town, hear a strange noise coming from the sky and begin to investigate, and kind of everything that accrues from that. It's wonderfully atmospheric. Uh, I really loved it, and I would wholeheartedly. Uh, recommend it and check it out and also if you haven't seen it already um what's uh jordan peele's nope um is is fantastic as well i i adored it now keep in mind that i know you didn't like get out but um i know you weren't as fond of get out as other people were but i'm quite fond of all three of peele's movies like i like Um, that but uh, yeah i suppose i had issues um all right then so we're gonna wrap up we'll be back next week where we are inexplicably doing two terrible movies in a row. Andrew has actually pointed this out to me. Why are we watching so many terrible movies? And my answer is, guess, Andrew. The guests chose them. Don't blame me. But yes, next week, we are talking to the fantastic Richard Drum, the sensational Jason Coyle, about Speed 2 Cruise Control, which is like, what is the what is even more exciting than a bus that can't, well, blow up if it goes under 50 miles per hour? A cruise ship. That is what is more exciting than a bus that will explode if it goes under 50 miles per hour. And then the week after, we'll be talking to the wonderful Raymond Creamer about Dumb and Dumber 2 when Harry met Lloyd. So thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Bye-bye.